It's a hot topic this time of year. What makes a fantasy trade fair? I'll ask Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, CBS, and the Beat the Shift podcast next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 9th. It's show number 35 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season, and it's great to have you. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. We have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, CBS, and the Beat the Shift podcast discussing what makes a fair trade in fantasy, some value drainers and bargains, some players helped and hurt at the trading deadline, managing roster risk, his boons and banes. It's a very full session with Ariel Cohen. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including Isan Diaz, John Berti, and other National League player news. And Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including the latest Yankees injury, the latest Byron Buxton injury, the Texas closer situation, and other news from the American League. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about pickup-worthy players who might be under the radar because they play on bad teams. And I'll also get his take on fairness in trading. We'll have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas starting pitcher Brock Burke. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Washington Nationals left-hander Patrick Corbin in New York to square off against the Mets right-hander Noah Syndergaard in the marquee matchup, as well as other weekend matchups. And in Masternotes, I'll be talking about some Masternotes notes from the Masternotes Notebook. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, we're going to start trading, probably underway in your league. What do you say? Let's talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, CBS, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me back, Patrick. I'm really delighted to be back on the show. Well, uh, I thought you were a terrific guest earlier in the season, and I'm so delighted that we could get you back. I know it's uh, tough for you to fit it in. You've got small children to get off to camp. You've got work to take care of, and, and of course you have your fantasy baseball teams, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, uh, hey, Ariel, I had something happen to me on Monday night that literally I cannot remember ever happening in 30 years of playing fantasy baseball. One of my players hit for the cycle. How about that uh, Jonathan VR turned the trick against the Yankees? The B- Baltimore lost, but... Jonathan VR, how about that? Have you ever had a player hit for the cycle? I definitely have. Um, in most of my leagues, we don't count triples and doubles, so uh, it really doesn't affect my fantasy standing. But sure, I, I've, I've had it. I think it's a wonderful thing to hit for the cycle. I, I love the, the aspect of a player that he can do everything. Um, I, I know Matthew Berry uh, on his fantasy show used to call uh, when you hit a home run in a stolen base a combo meal. I thought those were all really, really fun. Um, and So that, that's fantastic for you that uh, VR hit that. It was. He didn't steal a base, which is kind of why I drafted him. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a, a four for five with a bunch of RBIs and, a, and, a, and the home run. And uh, 
The triple and double, they don't count directly, but they're still hits, so that's also good. Uh, everything's good. I used to play in a league where we, instead of using home runs, we used total bases, and in that kind of a league, triples and doubles were really valuable, and I, I've always thought that it makes more sense to, to do it that way because the home run still has value, but now a triple is quite a lot more valuable than just a, than a single, which is not the case when you're just basically using batting average or on-base percentage. Sure, and if you're in a points league, then it, it does count. You know, you get a point for a single and two points for a double and so on and so forth. I happen not to be playing any points league this year, but, you know, if, if you are playing in one, then it certainly counts. And I understand you had a very rare experience on Monday night yourself this week. You saw the Mets win two games. How was that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I Hopefully it won't be a, a one and only experience, but no, it was great. Uh, we first saw uh, Jacob DeGrom pitched a great gem. The Mets won 6-2, and then uh, the Mets had, uh, uh, you know, they threw a rookie pitcher in. Uh, they were up early, they were down, and then they hit three solo home runs all in the seventh inning to take the lead. So it was a really exciting day at, at City Field. I'm so glad that I was able to attend. Now, did you go with your kids? Yeah, I took uh, the, my wife and kids. Uh, I went to the first game. They met me somewhere in the middle uh, uh, between the two games, and we got to see the rest of it. So it was a really, really fun time to have with the family. Yeah, only so much, uh, only so much baseball that kids, uh, little kids, can absorb. Uh, when I when I lived in a place that had a minor league uh, franchise, my wife and I used to we loved baseball and we used to go to the minor league park with our kids. But you know they were pretty young, you know seven, six, like that. And you know it's asking a lot to get have a kid that age sit through nine innings of baseball. So uh, sometimes we'd take them off to the little merry-go-round or some take take them off to get a, a snack or something like that just to break things up. And the only real drawback was my youngest daughter they had a the team had a mascot i forget who he was but he was kind of a one of those big sort of philly fanatic looking things but it was a dragon and for some reason every time he came near all the kids would pick me pick me and my daughter was just cowering in abject fear that this thing was going to come near and one time he did he came right up to her and she was she was practically beside herself you know she's you know how little kids are they just try to make themselves even smaller curl up into a little tiny ball so uh be mindful if you're taking your kid to a game. <laughs> Maybe they're not going to think the Philly Fanatics all that great. Uh, you mentioned that you have uh, no points leagues teams this year, but how many teams are you running, Ariel, and uh, how are they doing? I'm in, in uh, six teams this year. <clears throat> um, in the NFBC, I'm not doing so great uh, for a change, which is bad, because those are the high-money leagues. In one league, it's an utter disaster with injuries. I have Carlos Carrasco. I drafted Giancarlo Stanton, Blake Snell. You name it, I'm, I, I'm toast. Uh, in one league, I'm about 20 points out, which is not great, but I still have a shot. Uh, in Tout Wars, I'm doing pretty well. I'm bouncing back and forth between second and third place, depending upon the week. So uh, excited about Tout Wars. And uh, my other, well, my other home leagues, I'm actually in the money and uh, winning one by a nice margin. So uh, going uh, mixed bag, uh, some going well. I wish the NFBC would be a little bit, a little better so I can win a lot more money. But, uh, hey, uh, it comes and goes every year. Money's not everything. Which Tout League are you in? I'm in the Tout Wars Draft and Hold League. Oh, that's an interesting league. Yeah, they, uh, they, I think Tout Wars did a really good job by expanding the offerings to include more formats in that way. Uh, it's more interesting. It gives us, uh, anybody who's participating, a chance to experience those kind of different formats and to write about them and to think about how they differ from the sort of more mainstream formats. Uh, it's all very interesting. Uh, Ariel, 
you write for Rotographs, part of the Fangraphs family, and in late July, you wrote a column I think should be mandatory reading for everybody who plays, and especially for anybody who runs a league. And it has to do with what constitutes a fair trade in fantasy baseball. We all know this experience. It's always a bone of contention in our game at this time of year. Our trading deadlines are coming up fast. Everybody's nerves are on edge because the players who are maybe in the money or chasing a pennant are concerned that the players around them might make a trade that changes the race. So before we start talking about what makes a fair trade, let's be clear. You do not believe in trade vetoing. And given that you have some very well-constructed ideas about what makes a fair deal, why do you object to interfering when there's a deal that's unfair? Well, I, I, I don't uh, I don't object to it. Um, in fact, I think if uh, a, de- a deal is unfair, and of course unfair is a, is a debate, uh, you know, it shouldn't be allowed. I think that it's okay to have a commissioner of a league or even uh, maybe a, a, a risk committee, uh, a fairness committee uh, set up to uh, tackle any trades that are unfair. And if deemed unfair, then you know the players should be spoken to, and maybe uh, something should be changed and resolved. So I, I'm not against it. But, you know, in general, you know, just the trade goes up, I don't believe in, you know, all the teams getting to opine and, and saying, oh, well, I don't like that trade, uh, let's, let's veto it. Yeah, I'm with you. And uh, I think we'll talk more about this in a second, but don't you think that one of the really important things that a league needs to do is if you're going to say we will change trades that are unfair, they absolutely need to define what makes a trade fair or unfair in very precise terms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I think that uh, for most people, um, you know, fairness, either for them, is uh, whether they think that they can profit. If they think that, oh, this trade, oh, this is going to kill me, you know, they, uh, uh, unfair, <laughs> unfairly on their part, they just say, nah, nah, that trade is unfair. Uh, but no, uh, uh, most people think of fairness as just a very general thing, a very uh, bland concept, uh, a very broad concept that's undefined. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, to me, it's like Supreme Court Justice uh, Potter Stewart once said uh, about pornography. What, what is pornography? You know it when you see it. Uh, so, so teams just say, um, eh, it doesn't look fair to me, or it does, and they don't really have a description in mind. They just think of it. But I think it's important to really state and quantify it as I do, or at least have some guidelines to, to know what a fair trade is. And this way, any time a commissioner or a group can act on vetoing a trade, they have some guidelines on it. And you come at this whole question from the perspective of an actuary, that's your business, uh, that's your career, uh, and you're very good at it, and you have done a very interesting job over the years since I've been reading you of applying the kind of theories and concepts of actuarial science into fantasy baseball with your uh, with your uh, ATC projection systems, there's an element of risk management in that. I, I think you, you do a terrific job. So before we get into the details, Ariel, based on your actuarial background, what is the essence of a fair trade? Well, thank you so much for that, for that praise, by the way, uh, Patrick. Um, so you know, as an actuary, and an actuary, if, if those of you who don't know what that is, it, it's an insurance professional who deals with the mathematics of insurance. Um, you know, actuaries deal with setting insurance rates and calculating return on equity and hel- helping all the insurance companies out with, with the, the mathematical aspect. One thing that I deal with in particular is something called reinsurance. 
Reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies. Insurance companies actually purchase insurance from other insurance companies. And in essence, it's a trade, right? They're trading their risk to another insurance company who's taking on their risk for a cost, but it's a trade and, and it's laying off of risk. And in the reinsurance world, fairness is actually specifically addressed. In fact, there is a law that says that reinsurance transactions have to be fair. The law states that for a reinsurance transaction, there has to be a reasonable possibility for a significant loss on both sides. In reinsurance, we're concerned with one party always benefiting with the trade. So, you know, no matter, you know, if, if they give uh, some of their risk off, uh, we want to avoid a situation where they're just doing it for accounting purposes. Um, they, they can't, the reinsurer can't ever lose. We want to make sure that it's possible in a really bad year, any side can lose. And in the actuarial world, when we have to prove that, you know, we model, we do Monte Carlo simulations to say, hey, they've got a 10% chance of losing 50% on the trade, and they've got a 2% chance of losing 100% of the trade. And, you know, we model it and we give things. But the general principle is there that you have to have a reasonable possibility for actually losing. So I take that concept, and if I apply it to fantasy baseball, um, there, the way that I get it is um, you have to have in any trade the possibility, the reasonable possibility, that uh, any team can gain from the trade. You can't make a trade that only benefits or possibly benefits one team and where another team either is hurt or is no change. Both teams have to have a reasonable chance of a gain. So that's my general uh, a concept that I brought from the actuarial world onto reinsurance, onto fantasy baseball uh, to define fairness of trade. So the key principle, if I can paraphrase it, is the both sides have to be able to point to the possibility that they could make some progress as a result of the trade, and that's fine. But but in the real world, it starts running into problems right away, and and I apologize to any of our listeners. This is going to get kind of Talmudic here, here in a sense for over the next couple of minutes. But in your fantasy example, you offer a 10-team league in which the 10th place team has just 12 points and wants to make a deal with a second place team that has 77 and a half points and is very close to the lead. And you said, I can state without any hesitation that any trade between these two parties would be unfair. Why was that? All right, so in, in that particular scenario, I was giving a case where this is really late in the season and the 10th place team is really, really out of the money. We're talking the last week of the season. I don't care if every single player on that last place team hits a home run the next day and every pitcher on their team pitches a perfect game and they're trading their three worst players to get the three best players in the league. They're not jumping from 10th place all the way up to third place in a couple of days span. So in that scenario, the team's expected value of winnings, let's say the, the league pays out the top three only, their expected value of winnings before the trade was zero. After the trade, it's still zero. They had 0% chance of winning before, 0% chance of winning anything afterwards. There's no gain, right? Uh, I'm not pointing to any reasonable possible gain. Therefore, any trade that this team does is unfair because somebody else is going to possibly profit elsewhere, and they can't gain. So that, that to me, that I gave a very far-fetched example, and just to show the extreme one, but just to get you the concept that 
doesn't matter what the players involved are. You look at the context, and if there's no gain, it's not fair. In the article and in your explanation just now, you used the possibility of prize money as the determinant of possible gain. And uh, that puts me in mind of a couple of different situations I'd like to ask. But first, let me just ask this. What about a league like Tout Wars where there's no money to be gained? Is it still possible to use uh, without money? Does that make every trade fair? Um, you know, Tout Wars is, is an expert league and you know, you're really looking at, at expert players, and we have a, a general sense that they're always going to do the right thing. Um, that, you know, if they're in 10th place, I don't think they should be making trades very late in the season. Um, I do hold them to that high standard. Um, I would say that, you know, it depends what the goal of count is. Uh, I know that in some of the drafting rules, some of the drafting leagues in count, um, there is a concept of the next year you get to pick your draft slot. So if you finish in last place, then you might draft last next year, or, or you'll have the, the last cho- choice of where you want to pick. Or if you finish in last place, then you lose fab money uh, the following year. If that's the case, then yes, it could be accepted to have trading from the last, because you want to finish with some, you don't want to be deficient in FAB the next year. But if there's a case where there's no rule on that, and really tout wars, it's about winning or nothing, then no, I don't think that they should be allowed to trade late in the season if they can't make the jump from 10th to a place where they'd be deemed as winning. Well, the only place that's uh, deemed as winning is first place, so uh, that seems to really restrict any kind of trading, and, and it seems to butt up against another concept that Tout Wars tries to promote, which is you should keep trying all year, even if it's a situation where, say, you're in seventh spot, but you see yourself having a path to finishing fourth, that you're kind of duty-bound to try to finish fourth. And then, so these two things butt up against each other, because if I'm in seventh trying to get to fourth, or if I'm in ninth trying to get to seventh, and the easiest pathway for me to do that for my own benefit is to make a deal with the guy in second who ends up possibly uh, finishing first, I've affected the race, the overall race, but I've benefited myself as well. How, how do we square that circle? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, you have a trade deadline. Um, you know, let's call it the All-Star break or July 31st or the first week in August. Um, and you make eight trades acceptable early on in the season, and after that, you don't have trades uh, after that. Um, one, one concept that we had in a league that I used to be in for a while is that after the All-Star break, we did not let any teams in the top third trade with any teams in the bottom third. So, um, and there was money involved in that league, but we just didn't want teams that are far, far out of the money being able to affect some of the money straight away. So the bottom, the middle third could trade with the bottom third, the middle third could trade with the top third, but we wouldn't let the top trade with the bottom after the All-Star break. We had a final trade deadline a little bit later in the season, but just from there to reduce my point of fairness that I have, uh, we outlawed that. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, and, and it would matter what, what day you were on. So let's say you were, uh, you know, fourth place was the, was the cutoff at the top third. If you were in fourth one day and you were in fifth the other day, you, the rules might trade for trading um, in between then. So that made it interesting as well as I thought more fair. For the purpose of assessing fairness in general, Ariel, is it enough that both teams gain points? 
and I'm talking about in a non-money league, which is much more defined because uh, either you're going to make the money or you're not. And is it enough to gain points or do you have to move up in the standings as a result of your points gain? Well, I mean, you know, when you play a baseball game, it really doesn't matter how many hits you have. It matters whether you, you win the game in, in the end. Um, I think that the overall goal is to be at a certain standing. Whether you have 50 points or 70 points or 90 points, you know, fifth place is fifth place. So I, I think that the, the standing is far outweighs just your, your points. Uh, and if there is money involved, it's the expected value of earnings, uh, not just the standing. You said in the article, and I'm going to quote here, the key here is not to look at the specific players involved in the trade in a vacuum. The context matters in terms of the reasonably possible chance for a gain. And you've explained that here. Uh, then you used a specific example in a seemingly unfair deal. Uh, first rounder Nolan Arenado is traded for an undrafted player, Adam Engel. On the surface, this deal looks unfair because Arenado's clearly a much better player than Engel. So how could you design a trade that it could be considered fair at all? It seems impossible. Well, I mean, you have to look at the context and look at your standings. In, in the uh, example that I gave, your team, which was somewhere in the middle, was far away from either gaining or losing points in runs and RBIs and batting average and in power. And Nolan Arenado excels in those four categories. He would not benefit you all that much. However, in that example, it was really close in stolen bases. Adam Engel, even though he was undrafted and no one in their right mind would take them preseason over, late, late in the season, it might pay to have Adam Engel on your team because he steals a lot more than Arenado. Uh, he stole 16 bases last year. Arenado stole two. So in that one category, if it's really close, it might pay to have him on your roster. And if that's the case, then the trade could be deemed fair. Now, it's interesting. I was talking with my buddy uh, and, par- and partner, uh, Ruvain, yesterday. And in TGFBI, and actually I think he is in the same division as you, Patrick, uh, yes. he had a decision to make, play Josh Bell or play Jared Dyson. And... Anybody in their right mind would normally say, well, you can't play Jared Dyson. Bell's a lot better. But if you look at the context of his standing, and he's talking about the overall, the stolen bases were really clumped together. And one or two stolen bases could be the difference of a lot of points. Whereas power, uh, he would need five, six home runs to really gain or, or, or five, six left to really lose. So, yeah, it was a thought to play Jared Dyson over Josh Bell. And so in this case, you really have to look at the context. It's not just looking at one player versus one player in a vacuum. Uh, Context matters, and if you're talking about fairness, you have to look at the situation. Okay, so let's go through a real-world example. This is a league I'm familiar with, uh, and in it... The fourth-place team, we'll call them the green team, has a chance at winning the league, uh, a modest chance. But that green team made a trade with the tenth-place team, let's call them red. Uh, Just as an aside, green and red are the colors of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, which is my favorite team, and the Calgary Stampeders, which is the team I hate the most in the Western Conference of the Canadian Football League. So I'm going to go with the green team being better. But let's start here. First of all, Ariel, no money at stake in this league. So how much does it affect the fairness that this contender is dealing with this also-ran as a general principle? And I think you've said this is, as a general rule, probably not a good idea. Well, 
Yeah, as a general rule, and the fact that you're saying that the the tenth place team does not have a chance, he shouldn't be trading. Now, now back to what you said earlier. He uh, in terms of playing to the end and playing hard, you know, in all my fantasy leagues, I try to to play towards the end because you know, in a rotisserie league, you want to be fair and and not not get zeros in categories and play players who are active uh, and so on and so forth. But in general, no, I, I don't think that the tenth place team should be trading with a team that can gain uh, uh, in there. Now, if we're talking about no money and it's all fun. You know, you can debate whether it's fair or not. If 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 you know if going from tenth to ninth and eighth is considered something really to strive for. But here's a problem with that analysis that it just struck me, Ariel, and it's this: if I'm sitting in ninth spot and I aspire to get into eighth, but I'm not allowed to trade with anybody uh, in the top third of the of the league. Now my options for trading partners are restricted. And as a general idea, they're restricted to all the guys I'm competing with to move up from ninth to eighth, because, you know, we're all, we're all in that same area. So nobody's going to make a deal with me in ninth spot. The eighth place guy is definitely not going to deal with me. The seventh place guy might not, depending on how far away he is. The 10th place guy might not want to help me because he aspires to pass me. And all of a sudden by imposing these only low may trade with low and only high with high and middle can do whatever, all of a sudden you're kind of in a way restricting a pathway to trading at all because the only people who want to trade with the 10th place team are the top guys because the, the other guys are too near to the guy who's making the deal. Well, well, sure. I mean, in in any trade that's fair, a trade should be a, a trade that could benefit both teams. You know, the reason why a first place team might not want to trade with a second place team is you say, well, they, they don't want them to gain on them. They'd rather trade with a a low team. But you know, a trade that that's fair is a trade that's good for both. Uh, that that's sort of that's sort of the reason that that you said. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it is a little of a, a problem, and uh, if that means that trading after a certain point in August is not allowed for fairness, to me, so be it. Uh, that's why, if you have these rules, sometimes it encourages and spurns more trade er- earlier on in the season. I look at Major League Baseball right now. There, the new rule in the league this year is that there are no August waiver trades. The, the trade deadline of July 31st is final, and that might spurn more trading earlier on, and you don't have the situation where, all the way in the end, Houston can get Justin Verlander, and because some team has decided they're now out of it and, and just uh, pour it on. Uh, so it's a conscious decision of the league to do that, to spurn a certain uh, uh, trade ethic or a certain uh, uh, rule. Um, I'm okay with it. It's the same for everybody. If, if, if that means that you have to make your moves earlier and pounce earlier on the trade and it's exciting, that could be good for the league. Um, you know, and, and I think it's fair. Okay, so back to our deal. Uh, the fourth-place green team sent three middling starting pitchers, Mike Fires, Daniel Norris, Mike Leak, to the 10th-place red team, and green gets back Aaron Judge, Matt Olson, and Ian Kennedy. If we don't look at the competitive context, this deal seems really unfair, right? Just based on the names of the players involved. Yeah, I mean, the way to determine that is, you know, if you're talking about this kind of trade in the first couple of days or weeks right after the draft, then you can look at the draft rounds that players were selected, and you can look at auction values. And if there's, uh, you know, if they're not within the five, ten towers of each other and they're completely out of whack, 
then yeah, then that would be a, a, an unfair trade. And uh, you know, why, why would a team do that? They could have drafted differently right away. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree that that would look somewhat unfair from the start. Okay. But again, as you wrote in your piece, you have to consider the competitive context, and here it is. The fourth-place team, the green team, can gain five points, is his calculation, in some counting stats, runs, RBIs, home runs, and saves, mostly from his competitors in the overall race. And so before I go on, let me ask you this. How does Green deliberately targeting his gains at his nearby competitors in the overall affect the fairness of the trade, if at all? Well, it, again, it's on, it's the onus is on the team to show fairness, is to prove that they can gain. We're not here to show that they can lose. So if the green team can show by trading for a player, I think that I can really gain if things break right. Um, if they can show that, that's fine. So I'm okay with the green team, as, as just as you illustrated, saying that, and I think it's fair on their part. The question is whether red can show that their gains can actually mean something little bit off the topic here, but how about a situation where the green team trades a player to uh, uh, some other team because the other team, an also-ran team, can jump over all of his uh, overall competitors, and he doesn't gain directly. He doesn't gain points directly, but he gains points because all of his immediate uh, competitors in the overall race fall. Now, you're saying that, you know, is it fair on the green side by, they're losing by subtraction or, or, or they're, they're, they're giving their talent to the other team for the other teams to jump over them? That, that's the contention? That's right, yeah. And I'll give you an example. Years ago, and regular listeners will know about this example because I've mentioned it before, but I was in a league where towards the trading deadline in our league, I traded Mariano Rivera to the, like, I was in the battle for the lead. And I traded Mariano Rivera to an also-ran team, and I literally got back a player that I waived. That was the trade. Mariano Rivera for nothing. But the point was, because of the way the saves category was clumped, all of the, the, all of the guys that I was competing with at the top of the table got passed by the guy that I traded Mariano Rivera to in saves. So each of them lost a point, which to me was a four-point benefit for me. And that was the way that I, and nobody in my league objected. They thought it was pretty smart, but I I didn't gain points directly. I didn't lose any either. I was a mile ahead in saves, but I gained indirectly. And I wonder, could I use that in your view to demonstrate fairness in the sense that I gained points by having my competitors fall back towards me? Absolutely. And your argument that you just said right now, that is the proof that it's fair. The idea is not you gaining points. The idea is you gaining a probability of winning. Your probability of winning went from 25% to 30% because you're now giving the talent to other players to pass somebody else who could have more points than you. So the way you gave that argument is exactly why it is fair. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, certainly my, my competitors thought it was fair, too, and they thought it was pretty smart. And our league did on that your, all the on time. On your end. On, on your end. Mm-hmm. It, now, for the other one who, who, who's getting it, their argument is, well, I'm getting Mariano Rivera for, for nobody. It certainly is improving my odds. So that is exactly how to explain that a trade is fair. But keeping in mind that his probability of gaining points, which was, uh, uh, in fact, a certainty of gaining points, still left him way back in the field, eighth or ninth or whatever he was gaining. He was gaining points that were not going to get him into the money by any stretch of the imagination. Does that matter? 
Um, yes, right. It, 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 again, if their probability goes from zero to zero, the question is why are they trading? Um, you know, you, you, they have to show that they can gain something. And if this is late in the season, then you might have a, an issue with my uh, uh, doctrine of fairness here. If it's somewhere in the middle of the season, then you might not. And again, I'll play the devil's advocate here, but because the uh, there are there there are other ways to value the trade in terms of what I'm gaining, depending on league context rules and so forth. And in this case, this was a league where going from tenth to ninth had a benefit. You got a, a better draft pick in the farm draft the subsequent year. And in Tout Wars, there's a penalty for finishing under a certain amount of points, and it's a it's a ten dollar fab penalty in the next season per point. So it pays you to gain points all the time. And they they did that on purpose to keep guys playing. And and now it seems like if we adopt this version of fairness, that all of a sudden we're kind of uh, undermining that what I think is a fairly noble goal to keep guys interested and keep guys trying hard. Well, that's why I think that it's, it's a good idea for teams to have incentives for finishing lower down. If there's an incentive for finishing seventh versus ninth, then, then these trades can be deemed fair. Hey, listen, that guy is going from ninth to seventh. There's a value for him. There's a value for you at the top. There's a value for him. Uh, that's why a lot of people do what's called the keeper league. And in a keeper league, a lot of trades in the end is where uh, there's a, a, a player who is okay, but he can be kept next year at a low price, and so it would give a, a, an additional player for nothing or for a low cost the following year. But that player who's out of contention is trying to acquire them by trading one of their good players. I'll give you an example just happened to, to me uh, this past season here. Uh, I have Chris Paddock on my team uh, who can be kept at a very, very good cost for next year. Now, I'm winning the, the league, but I, and I want to make sure that I win the league, so I decided to trade him for Mookie Betts and Chris Bryant, two really good players for this year that I think will really help my chances. Now, from my point of view, um, I'm... I'm showing how it gains me. I'm now furthering my probability of winning. But those two players, Betts and Bryant, can't be kept for next year. The team that is, uh, he's in you know, ninth place or so, his value is not for this year, but it's for next year. And by getting Paddock, that increases his probability for next year. He can't use Betts and Bryant this year, so he would want to make that trade. That would be my argument for why that trade would be fair in a keeper league. Unfortunately, uh, in this league, individual owners get to veto, and they have vetoed the trade down, um, to my dismay. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, my argument in principle holds for me. I think that it's, you know, I'm increasing probability. He's increasing probability of next season. That's what you want in a trade. Right, and I think therein lies the rub. I, I think what the problem is that what the league has to do and what everybody in it has to do is agree on what we consider value. In, in, a, in a keeper league, of course, that you're running two races on one track, and so that there's, there are more pathways to, to the expectation of added value than there are in, in an only league. But let's get back to our only league, uh, to a one-year league, I should say. Let's get back to our green and red trade. Uh, green expects to lose a couple of points dealing away starters, but he's going to gain some points in uh, runs and RBIs and home runs and saves. 
and again, mostly from his competitors, so that's good for him. Meanwhile, the red team can't lose anything in runs, RBIs, and home runs. He's on an island, so to speak, and he is going to lose a save point, but he's going to improve two to three points in pitching from wins and strikeouts. So both teams figure to gain, I don't know, one to four points uh, each. And I think you've explained that that doesn't necessarily make it a fair deal. But here's another wrinkle. Red also gets a future benefit because he can use the three starters added innings to reach the innings minimum requirement, and he wasn't going to without adding starters. And he was going to lose all of his ERA and whip points, which means he was going to fall all the way into the basement. There are penalties in the subsequent year, as I said. And so he's now got two pathways to the value that he can use to explain the fairness. If you were the judge, how would you assess that argument? Uh, well, uh, you know, again, it, it all depends how late in, in the year it is and, and whether there's, there's a path for him to gain, you know, to, uh, to gain points at all. But, you know, if, if, if it means something to move up that late in the season uh, and you can use the fairness of qualifying, absolutely. I mean, qualifying, if you don't qualify in the innings, you lose all your ERA points and you lose all your whip points and then you have a zero shot. So even the case can be made that getting a starting pitcher over a zero in a slot, if that helps you just protect the points that you have, that definitely can be used as an argument. And finally, Ariel, your article takes the fairness question beyond just counting the points to assessing the probabilities of, of gaining standing spots in particular. This gets very complex, and the article has a lot of very useful tables and graphs to help explain the concepts, but uh, we're on uh, a non-visual medium here, so what are the key takeaways about probabilities that our listeners can think about? I mean, the, the, the key takeaway that, that I wanted uh, uh, readers to, to get from this is to just think differently. Uh, context matters. Think probabilistically. Don't just look at the, uh, at the players' names and at the points. Think about, does it improve my odds? It, uh, you know, you gave good examples of helping, by helping the other team. Just, I just want people to get uh, the thought of you've got to look at how it could help your odds of winning and not just uh, just the points. And again, uh, I, I got I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but there's a difference between improving your odds of winning and improving your odds of improving. And I think that's going to be something that leagues really need to take into account when they're setting up these rules. Uh, in the absence of the math skills that you have and the, the, I'm sure, computer tools and things like that, to ac- accurately calculate the probabilities, what can league players, league administrators, commissioners use to kind of get a ballpark idea of the fairness of trades using probabilities without having access to the tools that you have access to? Well, first of all, I'm trying uh, to actually get uh, people some access to that, and uh, I've developed, uh, as as some of the graphs and charts from my article have shown, I've actually developed an in-season probabilistic analyzer uh, that, uh, you know, you run pre and post a trade or pre and post a waiver uh, decision uh, for pickup, and you can actually calculate how your odds of winning first, second, or third changes, and I'm hoping to get that to a provider of stats and incorporated, which would be an immensely powerful tool to use. 
um, for, for anyone who's played fantasy baseball and, of course, in this fairness discussion as well. But right now, uh, without having that, um, I think that you just have to uh, uh, look at it and, and make the arguments as, as more mathematical as you can, uh, just as, as you did, Patrick, where you showed, well, I can gain three points and four points here. And, you know, you can give it your own, give it your own best assessment of how that changes. I think that it somewhat improves me. It greatly improves me. It very much improves me. And, you know, for now, that is a good uh, proxy in lieu of a probability. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, most of uh, most good leagues do this already. E- even if they have veto rules or trade cancellation rules or whatever, which I don't agree with, uh, especially where there's fuzziness or, you know, a, a blurred line, shall we say, I think you need to always err on the side of the people making the trade because otherwise the uh, Ron Chandler always used to say what you're saying is my judgment is better than your judgment and I should be free to run my team in any way I like provided I'm not colluding or provided I'm not just a dope who's handing over you know uh, all my talent to another guy for for a sack of magic beans kind of situation but if if we're all playing fair then what the heck? Jeez, Ariel, this has been enlightening. Time is really flying here. We need to take a break. i got to get to National League uh, Player News, American League Player News with uh, Nick and with Jock. Can you take a breather, come back in a few minutes for part two? All right, sounds good. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs and CBS and co-hosts the Beat the Shift podcast. He'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up next, though, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about one of my favorite topics, international tariffs and trade. Nah, just kidding. I want to bring you up to speed on First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, baseball, expert panel sessions, baseball, workshops, baseball, drafts, baseball, and one other thing. Oh yeah, baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, as well as guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over, and you can approach these experts, hit them up for advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League games. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. Or more, you know, who am I to stand in the way of hospitality? The fun at first pitch always continues in the evenings, and this year there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen and talking baseball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now you'll want to start thinking about this and getting out your calendar pretty quickly because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium takes place earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and it's at a new conference venue, the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho-Cam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference hotel rate, and when I checked it was at least $40 cheaper than the best online prices, and that's in Canadian money. If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously and who likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a long weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to the 13th in Mesa, Arizona. 
Find out more by going to baseballhq.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo over there on the right just underneath the HQ radio logo. Check it out. Get in early to take advantage of some early bird discounts. It's First Pitch Arizona. It's October 10th to 13th. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League News. And leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Chicago, where the Cubs made one of the big splashes in the early season by signing free agent Craig Kimbrell to shore up their bullpen as the closer. Kimbrell was doing pretty well closing games, 9 for 11 in saves, but he had decimals that were somewhere between dismal and horrifying, a 568 ERA, 166 whip, and now he's on the IL with knee inflammation. Uh, Tom Kephart covered this story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. It looks like there are two options at this point. Right-handed pitcher Steve Sishik and Brandon Kinsler could be in line for saves. Uh, Sishik got seven saves uh, when he served as closer during Strope's early season IL stint. Uh, good ground ball tendency is, is Sishik's primary asset. Uh, kind of pedestrian velocity and middling control are not very impressive. 89 BPV is well below the 100 BPV that we look for in a closer and well below his previous three seasons from 2016 to 2018. Uh, Kinsler, if he gets a chance, has better control, better command, uh, despite a lower DOM than Sishik, but uh, higher BPV and lower ERA and XERA. So uh, those are the two who will likely split time as long as both Strope and, uh, uh, and Kimbrell are out. There's also Dwayne Underwood Jr., but Tom Kephart says he's likely to be used in lower leverage situations. He got called up from AAA. I suspect that Sishik will be the first guy to be called upon in large part because he has closer experience and the managers put a lot of uh, emphasis on that because it covers them with the media if the things don't go well. But I think Kinsler might actually be the better bet. And of course, a lot will depend on how quickly Kimbrell gets back into harness. Uh, let's move over to Miami, Nick. Uh, the Marlins called up three players from AAA, including infielder Isan Diaz. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And we got some extra coverage from scouting analyst Nick Richards in the always excellent Daily Call-Ups report. What do Phil and Nick think of Isan Diaz? Isan Diaz is certainly an interesting player and, and someone who's worth fantasy owners kind of keeping track of. When Starling Castro was not moved to the trade deadline, it looked as if Diaz might have to wait a while before getting called up, but Castro was moved to third base. The Martins have decided to call up the 23-year-old Diaz to see if he can become their second baseman of the present as well as of the future. Diaz reached AAA New Orleans last year and was night and day different from this year's batting line. Last year, 204, 281, 358 line and about 300 at-bats. Uh, made observers wonder if this guy was really going to make it. And a uh, 0.33 batting eye looked as if he was really selling out for power. So fast forward to today, a uh, more typical 0.51 batting eye along with lots more power. Uh, 273 isolated this year compared to 154 last year. Puts us a little more at ease. Uh, known for being patient at the plate while putting up good power numbers with his uppercut swing. Uh, with that power comes above average speed that can result in a dozen stolen bases. Batting average might suffer while he adjusts to big league pitching, and that will never be his strong spot. He'll be more valuable in on-base leagues and in real life. Uh, defensively, he's played shortstop and third base. Uh, most of the time spent at second base, and that's where the Marlins will play him. 
Uh, started out, he's hit his first Major League home run already in his first 15 at-bats, but that's his only hit in his first 15 at-bats, uh, and contact rate has been miserable. So it'll be interesting to see how long they stay with him at second base. Of course, they're not going anywhere, so they might as well give him a shot. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, and the alternative is Starlin Castro, who's not going to lead you to the promised land, that's for sure. And I think there's something else that augurs well for Diaz staying in the lineup. He was part of the return that the Marlins got for trading away Christian Yelich. So the pressure is on for him to perform, and it's also on the Miami management for him to perform to show they got something useful for trading away maybe the best player in the majors. I suspect Diaz will get a lot of rope. Uh, Nick, uh, he looked good at AA opening the year, uh, AAA, uh, and now, as you said, he's off to that rough start. He was actually out of the lineup on Thursday. Starlin Castro took his spot. Meanwhile, in playing time tomorrow, National League East analyst Alain DeLeonardis at BaseballHQ.com covers the National League East and uh, the Marlins roster. And he raised another name with playing time potential in the Marlins middle infield, uh, John Berti, who might have been lost in the media spotlight when he was activated from the injured list because Miami was busy trading what seemed like half the roster at the deadline. What chance does Alain DeLeonardis give Berti of making an impact. Yeah, John Berti activated from the IL after missing two months with an oblique injury. Uh, so who is this guy and why should we even care? Is he just another name that we don't don't know anything about and don't care anything about? So some introductions. 29-year-old Berti made his major league debut last year after spending nearly all his previous seven years in pro ball in the Blue Jays system. Uh, through 2018 in minor league ball, he slashed 258, 342, 356 with 31 home runs and 265 stolen bases in 2,945 at-bats. And although the slash line there doesn't scream masher, it still adds up to a, uh, a decent line. Uh, exactly average and WRC uh, really stands out here as the speed. Barry averaged 49 and a half stolen bases per 550 at-bats and stole as many as 56 bags in single A in 2013. Um, so... This guy has some speed, even on an average chassis, wheels like that can help him take some take some flags. And uh, he kicked off 2019 a hot streak at AAA New Orleans, slashing 286, 490, 486 with two home runs, four stolen bases and only 35 at-bats, then getting called up to Miami. He spent about a month in Miami, batting 237, 324, 373, 12 runs, two homers, four runs batted in, one stolen base and 59 at-bats. And played shortstop, third base, outfield, and then went on the IL. So, on the other side of the injury now, Bertie is back in the bigs and playing regularly all over the place. He started five of the last six games at the time that this was written. He uh, Mostly those at third base, but also shortstop and left field. Eight for 21, three doubles, a triple, three runs, three RBIs, and three stolen bases. Uh, and that's no walks and seven strikeouts during that stretch. So, uh you know, that that's uh, we shouldn't pop champagne corks too early. He's got to take some walks to get on base, and at this point he's not doing that. So we know several things. He is very fast, and he knows how to steal. He can play multiple positions. The Marlins lineup is in flux, especially since the team called up Isan Diaz and sent uh, Castro to third base, and Diaz isn't doing too well, and so all kinds of things going on. So if you're looking for a few extra steals down the stretch, you might consider John Berti. Uh, with semi-regular playing time, could rack up five to ten steals between now and the end of the season. And that's not nothing. Uh, this year at StatCast, um, 
Berti has a 29.8 foot per second sprint speed, which is 12th in all of the big leagues, which is getting uh, getting them feats moving, as they say. Uh, moving on to San Francisco, speaking of moving feats, uh, the Giants dropped longtime second baseman Joe Panic on Tuesday. His feats will be moving out of the uh, Golden Gate City. He and his 234 batting average, three homers, and four stolen bases apparently deemed expendable with the trade acquisition of Scooter Jeanette. Uh, Rob Carroll covers the Giants for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What are the ramifications for San Francisco now that they've pushed Panic's button? Well, yeah, yeah but, but Panic has uh, certainly been more valuable in the real game than in fantasy. But uh, uh, the Giants' uh, recent assessment is uh, at least temporarily obscured by that distinction. Panic's play skills have rarely been an issue. 90% contact rate, 0.90i, but lack of production has been an issue. Uh, over the past two seasons, 702 at-bats, his line was 751, 245. And among all second basemen who played 90-plus games in 2019, his 627 OPS was the lowest. So when they got Scooter Gannett from the Reds at the trade deadline, Panic was informed that his status would be day-to-day. And uh, actually, the uh, end day apparently has come, at least as far as the Giants are concerned. Uh, second base belongs to Gannett, although he will have to be sharp in order to stave off the advances of Donovan Solano, who didn't reach the majors at all in 2017 and 2018, but his put up a 341, 372, 493 slash line and 138 at bats this season. So if you're looking for someone, get him while it's hot. That 40% uh, hit rate that he's got at the moment is not going to last forever. I read online somewhere that the Mets were kicking Panic's tires, uh, maybe hoping to shore up a really dreadful infield defense. Uh, staying in the National League East, Alanda Leonardis also covered the sudden rise to prominence of outfielder Adam Duvall, a former Cincinnati slugger. He was down in the minors, got called up, and had a little power outburst around the end of July, start of August. I think it was four home runs in three games, something like that. Not so much since, though, and Nick, more than half of the Atlanta outfield playing time is already accounted for by Ender Inciarte and Ronald Acuna. We have Nick Marquez out till September. He's got a broken wrist, but they have Austin Riley. They got Matt Joyce, and they got Adam Duvall and a couple of other guys all battling for some plate appearances in the outfield. And Greg Pyron also wrote about Duvall in rotisserie gaming on Thursday in a column called Risky Upside Plays. How should fantasy owners be playing Adam Duvall and his risky upside in a very crowded Atlanta outfield situation? Well, yeah, Duvall's a guy that you you, you know about him. You know he's got some power. You know he can do something, but you're right. The the situation is is crowded. But Austin Riley has been in a a prolonged slump. Uh, Duvall was surging into the lineup right when he joined the team and paid immediate dividends, three for five with a homer and two RBIs. Um, and he's, he's been in the lineup every day since he came back from, uh, was, was brought back up. And, uh, you know, he's a, a 30-year-old former All-Star, responded very well in his return to the majors, slashing 368, 405, 816 with eight runs, five homers, eight RBIs, and 38 at-bats. So, uh, you know, this is a guy who can do something. 124 hard contact index, 290 XBA, 265 power, 236 expected power, 106 BPV, all point to some real skills. Uh, before rejoining the Braves, he was performing really well at AAA, 259, 349, 582, with 66 runs, 29 homers, 84 RBIs, and 347 at-bats. So um, he contended with a 255 batting average on balls in play, uh, though his major early career mark is only a little bit higher at 272, so maybe he wasn't really unlucky. But uh, he was still doing what he'd done so well, in the majors a few years back, hitting the ball hard 
and uh, presumably striking out a bunch. But but the question is, you know, that's the guy what you expect, but Duvall wasn't striking out so much. And the major struck out 27.3% clip. Uh, that's uh, major league average is 21.6, so striking out more than usual. This season at AAA Gwinnett showed a much better eye, walking 10% of the time compared to a major league career of 6.9%, striking out only 20.4% of the time. So that's a lot of improvement over a statistically significant number of at-bats. You shouldn't be surprised by the power. He's hit as many as 33 home runs in a season, off to a hot start, and as long as he produces, could continue to get regular at-bats. So the, the, the key really is his plate discipline. Uh, so far, he's reverted back to his former free-swinging ways, 7% walk rate, 33.3% strikeout rate. Uh, but the, the sample is still small. And so uh, here's a guy that might be able to provide some power down the stretch. Now, there are lots of places to get power. So uh, unlike Bertie, who may provide something that other people can't, uh, Duvall is, a, is more of a wild card, I think, at this point. Yeah, I think the key is going to be if Duval can split the difference between the improved walk and contact rates in the minors versus what he's doing in the majors, which hasn't been real impressive on the plate discipline front. And, you know, he's in a tough situation playing time-wise because there are, they have options. They have a lot of options out there. I mentioned a couple of them. Uh, Austin Riley, who's struggling. Matt Joyce is kind of a platoon guy. But they have some uh, some possibilities there. I like Duvall's chances to to contribute on the on the uh, power side as well. But uh, yeah, that there's a lot of moving parts here. So uh, I don't think we can just say with great confidence, grab Adam Duvall and you'll be the happiest uh, fantasy owner in the world. Yeah, I think that's true. But another piece of the piece of the puzzle here that uh, just went went down yesterday. Riley is on the IL, ten uh, IL with a partial tear of the LCL in his knee. So out indefinitely at this point, um, that's not an injury that will necessarily require surgery, but Austin Roddy may not be back at the end of 10 days. No, it doesn't sound like that. I hadn't heard that. Uh, they also have, I think, uh, Camargo plays a little outfield. Charlie Culberson's been known to wander around out in the in the hay as well. So um, like I said, they have options, but the news that Riley's out certainly doesn't hurt uh, Adam Duvall's chances any. No, not at all. And I've got one league I play in, for example, where we use a pinch hitter. Uh, that guy's batting average doesn't count, but all the other stats do. So Duvall's a kind of a prime candidate for a spot like that. Yeah, I suspect most leagues don't have that feature, but if they do, you're right. <laughs> it sounds like, a, sounds like a, one of those crazy rules that pops up in, in guys' leagues from time to time. Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Talk to you again in a week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. On to the American League, BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing good, doing good. Uh, we have an unusual piece of news to open this uh, American League Market Watch News report. The Yankees got an injury, Jock. Can you imagine it? <laughs> the latest injury, I guess I should say, Edwin Encarnacion broke his wrist being hit by a pitch. He's out at least until the end of August, maybe early September, maybe longer than that. Uh, Matt Dodge covers the Yankees for BaseballHQ.com playing time today. The Yankees have kept Matt busy all year with this ridiculous run of moves to the injured list. Uh, do they have anyone emerging in the wake of all these injury opportunities that fantasy owners should be taking flyers on right now? Yeah, you know, no kidding about the Yankees injury list. I just went to their team page before we started on this. 
and their injury list takes up my entire computer screen I can't remember that happening and I've got a typically big computer screen like most of it have have in trying to uh, handle the 10-day DL and all of these injuries um, a lot of different lineups if you look at the Yankees recently uh, uh, they're doing a lot of shifting but this injury seems to cement uh, DJ DeLamayhew uh, as the the primary first baseman for now Mike Ford has been called up for uh, to take um, um, Encarnacion's spot, lineup spot. Uh, he's going to get some time. He's hit well in the minors. Matt points this out. Uh, um, I think he's he's hit three oh three. He's got a three oh three four oh one six oh five outline and two ninety four at bats, and the and the peripherals are good. But he he hasn't done that well as a major leaguer. The one guy I really like on the Yankees who's getting playing time with all this injuries are is Mike Touchman. He's a guy. Uh, uh, who I think now, if you don't have him as a down-the-stretch flyer, you may have lost out. Uh, he's he's hit 297 with 11 home runs under 182 at-bats. Uh, good supporting metrics, so why not take a chance on him? Is there any concern with a guy like this that, uh, you know, he, he has 11 home runs, you mentioned, uh, just uh, over 180 at-bats, so if you prorate that out, it makes him into a 40 or 45 home run guy over a full season, and that would really be stretching the imagination based on his past history uh is there a concern there that you're just going to sign in just as he reverts back to form and you get nothing oh sure and and you, you, you it's really hard to tell how good some of these guys are given the home run inflation that's been going on and and you know what what changes what compensating changes might be made for next year uh um i'm really looking at Touchman right now as a down-the-stretch flyer if you keep him on your roster. And again, I'm talking about keeper leagues. You're going into next year. Um, who knows what you're going to get. Another club with some fairly ridiculous injury issues and other issues has been the Angels with most of their problems being uh, on the pitching side. And just as they were hit, starting to hit again, uh, Felix Pena tore his right ACL, covering a play at first base. Griffin Canning was forced to the IL. He's got some elbow inflammation issues. You cover the Angels in playing time today and playing time tomorrow. You're a fan. You're an, uh, you live in the area. You're in the fan base. How do you expect the Angels to deal with, with everything that happened this past week? They're just trying to get through 2019. If you look at the player page there, um, the, the only guys you, you can depend on right now, the only starters we're depending on with 9% innings uh, are Jose Suarez and Jaime Barria. These are youngsters with a future, but right now they have earned run averages over six. They're struggling. They're getting killed with the long ball. The Angels are just running out of arms. Now, they've, they've had some good fortune in that they've trotted out Dylan Peters, who they got during the offseason for Miami, who hasn't been particularly good until now, but he's put up a 3.45 ERA for the Angels in, uh, I think I'm looking at here, 31 innings. Uh, his his expected ERA is a lot worse, so we expect some regression. But he's at least held the line a little bit for them. Um, they got a good start from Patrick Sandoval, another inexperienced rookie who probably shouldn't be up right now. He has a long-term future. I sure wouldn't trust him now. You know, again, they're just cobbling together uh, – uh, starts right now. They ha they had a little bit of good news in that uh, um, Andrew Heaney is expected back to start against Boston this weekend. Uh, he's been on the DL with with uh, with an inflamed shoulder. I don't know that I would activate him against the Red Sox, and who knows how long he's going to stay healthy. But uh, that's kind of where the Angels are right now. Yeah, it's a pretty sad situation. For a while there, they were starting to make some noise as maybe having a, a outside shot or a wild card. But I think that that 
ship has sailed now. Uh, Andrelton Simmons, meanwhile, also back on the IL. This time he's got a ankle sprain. How does the club replace him? Well, mostly with David Fletcher, who's been a, a super utility all year. He's been playing most of the shortstops since Simmons went down. Uh, Wilfredo Tovar uh, replaced Simmons on the 25-man roster. He's getting a spot, spot start here and there. The guy who's making out, who's winning the playing time with Simmons gone, is rookie Matt Theis, who's the most of the time third baseman now uh, as Fletcher moves over to short. And, of course, you remember Tommy Lastella was the, the regular third baseman, and he was having a, a career year, but he's out pretty much for most of the rest of the season with uh, that uh, that injury that knee injury so um, uh, the Angels have injuries across the board very similar to the Yankees. We talked about Matt Theis uh, earlier in the season uh, just when he first started playing but uh, give us an update on how he's been doing and what we should expect. He's had his moments he's he's starting to hit for more power don't forget this was a guy who when he was drafted was thought of as a bat Bat, uh, a hit tool first player who didn't have a lot of power. Now he's developing power. He's still maintained his patience. He's struggling with contact a little bit. Uh, he's hitting a, a little bit over 200. A lot of extra base hits, a lot of home runs. He's, he's kind of in development mode right now. Left-handed hitter, uh, we have to see what happens with him. Um, um, I'm, the verdict is still out on Matt Theis. On the other coast, another team that's having all kinds of issues and pitching being among them, Boston has now put David Price on the injured list with what was called a cyst on his wrist, and that could be relatively benign and easy to fix or not, but uh, we'll have to take the optimistic view, I think. But who's going to replace David Price in the rotation, and what does baseball HQ analyst Matt Dodge, who covers the American League East, say about this situation with Price and the uh, Red Sox? Well, Matt noted that Price has added a, a, more than a full run to his ERA over his previous four starts. He was sitting at 3.16. Now he's at 4.36. Uh, he gave up 39 hits and seven home runs in 17 innings. So perhaps uh, maybe this is, this is a reason why. Um, I think the Red Sox are expecting uh, or hoping Hector Velasquez and Brian Johnson can pick up Price's innings either as as uh, starters or, or bulk relievers, uh, Johnson seems to seems to be more likely to get the starts. Uh, he's been able to to get higher pitch counts in his uh, his three 2019 starts, but he still hasn't gone too deep into games. Uh, Velasquez has had a bunch of uh, PQS disasters in his uh, 18. I'm sorry, his eight 2019 starts. Uh, and four of them, to, to be specific. Uh, so he's more likely to be used in relief. Boston's bullpen is in big trouble right now. Um, Boston's rotation is in trouble. I don't see how they hang, and they're very much in danger of not making the postseason this year. Oh, yeah. I think that uh, it would take something of a miracle now because they're just not getting anything done, and they're falling further and further out of the race. Uh, anything could turn around, but uh, with their pitching, especially their starting pitching, and you mentioned uh, especially Brian Johnson. Uh, he has uh, you know relatively high pitch counts compared to some of the alternatives, Hector Velasquez, uh, 70 pitches, 83 pitches, 70 pitches. But that only got him through three innings, five innings, three innings. So it's not like he's throwing lots of pitches and getting lots of outs. He's just throwing lots of pitches. Yeah, it's and it's really the same old story. We keep hitting these teams, you know, um, Boston, who is expected to be to be good this year. The Angels, who some people said were going to be a wild card team. And here we are in August. There's no pitching to be found. There's really... If you have pitching, your name is probably Houston and L.A., it's, it's pretty easy to start picking the postseason favorites right now because everyone else looks like they're dead in the water. Meanwhile, uh, Boston had been chasing Tampa, but they're not exactly in the f 
peak of health either. They've just put Yanni Chirinos on the injured list. He's got an inflamed middle finger. They say maybe two weeks, not till September, he'll be back. Uh, Chirinos has actually been pretty good this year, 127 innings, a 362 RA. And of course, Tampa already had Blake Snell on the IL and Tyler Glasnow on the IL. What does that Tampa pitching staff look like with all of these injuries? Yeah, this is another situation. At least they have Charlie Morton, but behind them, it's all bullpen. It's it's Ryan Yarborough, it's Austin Pruitt, Jalen Beeks. Now, some of these some of these names are 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 pretty decent. They're bullpen guys, but uh, they're down to most of their rotation being being essentially bullpen games. Now, they also have Brendan McKay, a rookie who's going to have a, a very good major league career if he stays healthy. But they have to watch his innings pitched. He's bumping up against uh, what. Uh, uh, over 95 innings right now combined uh, in in uh, Tampa Bay and in the minors. He only had 74 in 2018. How much are the Rays willing to push him to make the postseason? Um, they they've got uh, Jose De Leon and uh, Anthony Banda down in the minors. Uh, neither one are probably ready to come up yet, but they're hoping they can uh, make a contribution in September. Um, Tampa Bay is another team up against it pitching wise. And you know, when we talk about the wild card for the longest time, we just assumed that whoever finished second and third in the AL East was going to be the AL wild card. And all of a sudden, here come the Cleveland Indians roaring up like the, a train uh, running down a hill. And uh, they're three and a half games up in the wild card race, and they're starting to threaten for the um, American League Central lead. So all of a sudden, it looks more like we're going to get two teams out of the American League Central and two teams out of the East, which means either Tampa or Boston is going to be out. And Boston right now is five and a half games behind Tampa Bay for that second slot. It does not look good for them. Yeah, funny how that works. Huh? Everybody was assuming that the NLE, the AL East was going to produce uh, at least one of the wild card teams and possibly two, and it may not do either. Um, it's going to be fascinating. The Indians have uh, Corey Kluber doing rehab now, coming back. Uh, I like their chances better than Boston's or Tampa Bay's right now. And we can't ignore the Oakland Athletics either. They're only half a game out of the wild card spot, and they seem to really be rolling, having a lot less trouble than certainly the Tampa Bay is. Uh, Jock, as the uh, American League West uh, uh, analyst for BaseballHQ.com, you've spent some time looking at the bullpen situation in Texas, where previous closer Sean Kelly has returned to the roster from a two-week stint on the IL. He had some bicep soreness issues, but the Rangers have pretty much confirmed that Jose Leclerc is back in the closer role and their bullpen use pretty much confirms that fact. So we have Chris Martin gone. We have Kelly back in the setup role. Is Jose Leclerc the closer for the rest of the year? You know what? The Angel, uh, the Rangers would like this to last. I- I'm still not convinced over the long haul. And again, I'm looking at keeper leagues, uh, looking to 2020, that this is going to last. The reason it might last this year and, and the thing that we, we seem to forget occasionally is that the, the Rangers... Um, extended Leclerc last year when he had the big second half. Uh, right now he has a contract that's worth uh, four years, $15 million through 2022. And they've got team options in 2023-2024. Uh, in this is a good cheap contract. Obviously, they would like it to work or they would like to get some value out of it so they can trade him. Um, but if you look at Leclerc's numbers, he's not the same pitcher as he was in the second half of last year. I don't know whether it has to do with the ball or the, the, the home runs or whatever, um, but his swing and misses down, his walks from the second half are up, um, his ERA is way up, 4.44. 
he shows flashes he's he's very inconsistent uh, so the rangers are going to give him all kinds of rope but this is a club that seems to do a really good job in uh, in finding power arms be it through their system or being at discards through other people and there's a couple of names that if you're in a keeper league or a dynasty league i'd keep an eye on uh, uh behind jose leclerc just in case he does cough this up how about uh, jesse chavez in that in that closer role yeah, I have a little bit of trouble with Jesse Chavez. He's he's really been getting whacked around lately. Uh, he he tends to go through his hot and hot and cold spells. He started for a little while, pitched a few good games there, got bombed. Um, they put him back uh, in in the bullpen. They they have tried to use him as the setup guy for um, for Leclerc, and he did really well over the first couple of months. But it never seems to last. And uh, I think there's a couple of names that are passing him right now. Emmanuel Classe, who's a rookie that they just brought up, guy who can bring it at a, at 100 miles an hour uh, um, regularly. Um, very good command. This is a guy, if you watch his development, he's a future closer. I think he's a real threat to um, Jose Leclerc right now. Interesting name to, to think about. Even in a, a redraft league, if uh, this Class A has any kind of shot at it, uh, you might want to take a look at him, maybe stash him if it's possible in your league. Uh, boy, great, great information, Jock. Appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again in a week. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, CBS, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the free rotisserie gaming column, Greg Pyron takes a gander at some risky upside plays for the stretch. In the daily call-ups report, Baseball HQ scouting analysts have looked at Milwaukee right-hander Devin Williams, St. Louis right-hander Junior Fernandez, and all the other prospects making the jump to the big leagues. And in the Facts and Flukes spotlight, some guy named Peter Divot or Patrick something or other, takes an in-depth look at the Twins breakout star Jorge Polanco. Those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, we have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, there's fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse, we have injury analysis in the Big Hurt, and there's even more content and tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So if you just add it all up, you get expert-level content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs, CBS, and the Beat the Shift podcast. Ariel, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. Well, after that first segment, I had to have you back. It was one of the most interesting discussions I've had on uh, Baseball HQ Radio here in many a moon. Uh, very interesting conceptual ideas, and those are important for people who play the game seriously, I think. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. 
At Rotographs, you had a column just before the trading deadline about mid-season auction values, and you were focusing on guys you called value drainers. Uh, I think it's fairly obvious, but quickly explain what a value drainer is. Well, a value drainer is a large underperformer relative to their preseason auction value or their draft slot equivalent. Um, if, if we define a bargain as the player's accumulated annualized rotisserie value minus the cost that it took them to acquire the player preseason, either what they paid for them or an annual, uh, uh, an average auction value, then a very negative bargain players are what's known as a value drainer. And you started the discussion by uh, putting in a definition, you capped the values of losses, and I believe that was because you said if a guy's losing that heavily, he's going to get dropped or reserved, so you can't say he lost all $50 that he would have lost had he been on the roster all year. Right, right. I mean, take a guy, the example I gave in the article is Dan Straley. Dan Straley has a 9.82 ERA, at least it was uh, at the time that uh, I wrote the article. There is no way that if you play in a, let's say, even a 12-team league, that you, after his ERA hit 6-6 six, six, and he gave up another seven earned runs, you're not starting him the next week. In fact, you're probably dropping him, and that player is going to be unowned. He's so awful that you wouldn't roster him. So it's not fair to say that his accumulated value is all that negative 30 negative $50. At some point, you're going to drop him. So the concept of capping values uh, is, is fair, I think. Um, Technically, you know, you wouldn't play players below replacement, and in a lot of auction calculators, replacement level is one. Uh, now, obviously, you know, you're, you're going to be stuck playing crappy players uh, in their negative times, uh, but it's fair to cap it. So whether you want to cap it at $1, cap it at minus 10, cap it at zero, whatever number you want to cap it at, and it could be different for different people. However, you know, you work the math, it's fair to cap a value at a certain point. Right. It, to me, it, the first thing I thought of was, you know, in a stock market situation or investing situation, I have a portfolio of stocks. And if somebody looks at my portfolio and says, oh, my God, XYZ consolidated lost 60%, it must have destroyed your portfolio. I say, no, because I had a stop loss and I, I was out after minus 10. And, you know, so I, I didn't, I didn't, the, the value continued to drain, but it wasn't draining out of my bathtub. We'll put it that way. <laughs> So among the hitters, who were your top value drainers, the top three or four? Um, Giancarlo Stanton uh, was the uh, worst hitter uh, in terms of losing value. Aaron Judge, um, Jose Altuve, Jose Ramirez, those were the, the top few. Well, I noticed three of those guys had injury that affected their value. They just can't put up the counting stats when they're not playing. Uh, so the big drainer who actually played, Jose Ramirez. Jose Ramirez, uh, Paul Goldschmidt for the first half, and uh, Mookie Betts also made that, mostly because of the high value that he took to uh, acquire. Right, and it's important to understand when we talk about value drainers, the easiest path to being a value drainer is to have gone in with a very high price because uh, we, we all know just from uh, our own experience that the higher the price at auction or the higher the round, uh, the less likely the players re to return any kind of value equivalent to what he cost and that therefore it's, we'd have to expect that most of the big value drainers would be the guys with the highest prices. That's right. Um, and that's not to say that you shouldn't take a high, high guy. I mean, uh, Mookie Betts, uh, that I mentioned as a big value drainer, if you were drafting him, you probably took him second overall. But 
uh, he he still returned a twenty dollar value in the first half, which is not it's not awful. He still you know got a really good player. You know we're talking like a top twenty five or so player. Um, you know, you can't really help in the draft because you're given that draft slot, and that's equivalent to some $45 value. Um, you're looking to get the player who you think has the probably the highest floor or the least amount of risk, and you do that. But for players in an auction, um, you might think twice about spending that $45 on a Mookie Betts. It might be more uh, beneficial from a return on investment perspective not to go after high players or, or players who cost a lot and spend your money in the middle. I mean, if you spent uh, money on two $20 players who each returned a $15 value each, you would have done better in the aggregate than getting Mookie Betts at $48 returning 20 So for an auction, yeah, looking at the value drainer list might change your strategy and what you purchase. It certainly has changed for me. Well, it sounds like you move away from stars and scrubs to a spread-the-risk type of strategy. Is that what you meant? As far as hitters go, absolutely. That That is what I do each and every time. I rarely spend more than $30 on any player unless I think that the risk is commensurate there. Your number 10 value drainer among the hitters was Jesus Aguilar, uh, then of Milwaukee. He's moved to Tampa, of course. How do you like his chances of becoming uh, less of a drain? Well, he, he homered two nights ago for Tampa, and, you know, to me, I, I always, when I see a player goes to Tampa, Tampa is thinking about him. You know, they're a good organization, and, you know, uh, I won't take that as gospel, but I'll give it a second thought. I mean, they've turned around a lot of players. Look, Travis Darnot, he stunk on the Mets, and, uh, you know, they're turning him to be a really productive part of their team who single-handedly won a couple of games this year. For the season, uh, I think that Aguiar will still be a net value drainer because of all the value he lost so far. Um, but going forward, he might actually be an undervalued player. I mean, he's still only he's only 43% owned, and you know he has 30-40 homer upside. We saw it last year. Uh, he might be a small bargain if you can somehow snag him in a trade right now. Or actually, you can pick him up on the waiver wire if you're able to do that in a lot of leagues. Yeah, getting back to the trade idea, the the whole value draining thing, I think, is a really useful thing in trading leagues because oftentimes if you look at a player who's been a huge value drain, his owner's frustrated with him and can't see the possibility of you know a sunk cost. What's done is done, and I've just got to get rid of this guy because he's driving me crazy. And sometimes you can swoop in and get a real trade bargain just by focusing on the fact that Hey, $30 player, $5 return. And the guy goes, yeah, you're right. And even more, in a more ideal situation, you take your $5 guy who's unexpectedly given you $20 and you make that trade because the probabilities are that the good player is going to outperform the bad going forward. Sure, sure. Who are the big drainers among pitchers? Uh, Corey Kluber was the uh, largest value drainer. Carlos Carrasco, Aaron Nola, uh, Noah Syndergaard, those were your top four. Again, some injuries involved there. Ariel, when you looked at the at the whole situation, hitters, pitchers, these value drainers in general, did you notice, other than injury, any th- common themes uh, 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 that, that would identify or help us possibly identify future drainers? Um, 
I'm not sure that you can get, uh, you know, the, the drainer is, is, is a uh, retrospective look. It's not really a prospective look. It, it's not indicative of the, of the future. I mean, Noah Syndergaard has turned his season around. Um, it, it, it's just a statement on what actually happened there. Um, I mean, in terms of themes, the only thing I can say that is uh, I, I've seen that this year was a relatively good year for closers. I mean, unless you had the top two closers, Edwin Diaz, Blake Trinan, you pretty much fared pretty well if you spent. I mean, the biggest mid-range bust, according to this list, was Cody Allen, uh, but most of the top closers have held, so it was a good year for closers. On the other end, it was a bad year for stolen bases. I mean, people who invested money in big stolen base guys were talking Garrett Hampson, Trey Turner, Jose Peraza, Infiarte, Lorenzo Cain, D. Gordon, Billy Hamilton. I just mentioned a, a number of players who all went for decent value in, in drafts or high, high rounds. Uh, those were a ton of speed players that were absolute busts this year. So I think it was a really bad year for the stolen base. Um, I, I think that was really interesting when I, when I came uh, after running this analysis. And again, you talked about retrospective versus perspective. Does that change your attitude as you think about looking ahead to future drafts, about how you're going to think about stolen bases, or more broadly, because you may already not like stolen bases, but should owners be thinking about being less uh, interested in those stolen base specialists uh, as, a, uh, as an ongoing thing, or is this, do you think, just an anomaly? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that, you know, when you're looking at what kinds of players you should invest in, it's not just, you know, blanket players. You need to really look at, are speed players valuable? Are power players valuable? Are combo players valuable? And when you look at the types of players and you do a return on investment analysis, you can actually see it's better to target top top players in a certain category. Now, for, for pitching this year, uh, I, ha- I had that article, uh, The Case for an Ace, where I said that if you're going to target starting pitchers, the best return on investment is up top. And I, get, I got that by looking at the past season, or if you even look at the past couple of seasons, you'll see that the best value that held in terms of either bust rate or total expected value was at the top. Um, and I think it doesn't change all that much year to year. I don't think it's anomalous. I think there is correlation. Um, so, yeah, to the extent that you can see that, you know, closers, you know, they actually, uh, closers are more fickle because of, of it's a role. But in terms of speed, yeah, I, I think that you can take something that next year um, you need to get more combo players with the stolen base guys and not just get a one-trick pony. They were really unprofitable this year. I can say that I, I did use that strategy in a couple of leagues and it worked really well. I tried to ignore the Billy Hamiltons of the world and the D Gordons of the world, although much to my chagrin, I did grab uh, D Gordon in one league and it really hurt. But the players who deliver stolen bases in smaller amounts, but in addition to other contributions, I think that's going to be where the value is in the future. And of course, everybody's going to realize it, right, Ariel, and their prices are going to go up. Well, that's what happens. Well, it's like the stock market. When there's a market efficiency or inefficiency um, and you can spot it, then you run to it. And as soon as everybody else catches on, it goes away. Uh, talk about pitchers again. Um, for all the, uh, all the years in the, uh, uh, the, go back seven, eight years ago, starting pitching at the top was thought of 
don't don't spend money on top pitching. I mean, I remember getting Clayton Kershaw for twenty one dollars back in the day, and everyone's like, "Wow, you spent twenty one dollars on a top pitcher," but you know, I saw that that was the better return. Suddenly, in the past couple of years, everyone has caught on to that, and now if you walk into the NFBC and you think that you can get Kershaw or, 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 or a top a top pitcher today, a uh, Chris Sale for thirty five, they'll laugh at you. Thirty five, good luck. The pitcher's right. going to go for forty dollars. Um, so that efficiency has has uh, uh, now caught up to me. But you know, if you're a good fantasy player, then you find somewhere else where you can catch the efficiency because everyone's spending their money there. That becomes less of a good return on investment. Some other place would. That's the fun of this uh, is to know what the best bargains are, and that will change over time. That's a really good thing for for the game. Moneyball, right? Identify market inefficiency exactly. and exploit it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, o- OBP was thought of. You know, let's go after OBP players. You know, but that and 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 let's not steal. Stolen bases are now going to uh, uh, just lead to less expected runs. But then, if you can find that the stolen base guys are really cheap to acquire in your team, well, now it becomes a good return on investment. You know, it changes over the years. Uh, it's a statement about real-life baseball, fantasy baseball, stock market, everything in life. is you know, do, do what's good and what you can find to be efficient, and keep in mind that that's going to change when everybody else realizes it. It's also interesting, isn't it, Ariel, that the path that, uh, that Major League Baseball is on, de-emphasizing stolen bases, over-emphasizing home runs, even de-emphasizing singles and doubles because they, the, all of the run creation is, is moving towards uh, the uh, long ball, has really had a profound effect on the valuation of, of fantasy baseball because fantasy baseball has not altered the scoring systems uh, or hasn't altered them quickly enough to keep up with the changes that are going on in the real world. Oh, nor should they. I mean, uh, you mentioned you know the long ball. I think the Minnesota Twins are a great example of a team that 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 you know that took that. That they get players that are able to now with the juice ball just hit it over the wall. You know, Nelson Cruz, Mitch Garver. Eddie Rosario, these are players that are not clocking balls, you know, uh, 450 feet like, like, like Stanton. They're just hitting it over the wall. And that gain, you know, they're doing it by, by getting all these players who were, you know, two years ago might not have had such a, such a fantastic uh, power output. Now they are, and they're able to get these players on the cheap and compile them and look at their offense. It's superb. Um, kudos to them. I think the Twins are a great run organization. You also had a, a list of best bargains. It's a little far back now for us to go into detail, but uh, did you see any themes on the bargain side for hitters or pitchers uh, in the same way that we talked about themes for the, for the drainers? Yeah, I'll, I'll say that the catchers this year, I mean, going into this year, everyone said, oh, catchers are a wasteland, catchers are terrible. Um, I think that uh, some of the lower-down catchers really have come up to be to be excellent. It was not a bad year for catchers. We got Mitch Garver, as I mentioned, Jason Catro, his his teammate, James McCann, Roberto Perez, Christian Vasquez has jumped up. Um, you know, spending money high up may have not uh, won you anything, but all the what was supposed to be a wasteland down below turned out not to be a wasteland. I, I thought that was a theme in the bargains. There were a lot of good catchers that came up as value. 
And again, the, the danger is don't think that because it happened in 2019 that it'll be repeated in 2020, but you have to feel a little bit confident about that. What I noticed in all the lists, Ariel, was that the high-priced players uh, tended to be riskier. We talked about that insofar as the possibility of money losing, but of course it makes sense that if you've got a $40 player on your roster, his chances of being profitable, of being a bargain, are greatly reduced. And what we see instead is your list is mostly populated with single dollar value guys. I think there were two exceptions on the offensive side, Cody Bellinger and Raphael Devers, and two on the pitching side, Charlie Morton and John Gant. But other than that, all of the bargains are single digit value guys that are that uh, created, you know, $20, $25 of value. There's many examples. Again, does that affect how we should be looking at this value proposition when we sit down at our auction table and steer us more towards the bottom of the market than the top, keeping in mind that just because the bottom guys led doesn't mean all bottom guys end up being real profitable? Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you're talking about in a draft, uh, I think what you need to be cognizant of up top is not, uh, is not upside, but it's floor. I think that you need to take players in your first couple of rounds who have the highest probability of getting those stats or a high percentage of their stats uh, there. Uh, combo players for hitting are, are more important. If you can steal and you can have some average and you can hit power. I mean, I, I always think of uh, Alex Gordon as one of my guys who, you know, a mid-round player that, you know, he's just... He's always going to get something. Alexei Ramirez, you're always going to get some value, especially high up, high up top players. I mean, uh, you know, take Whit, Whit Merrifield. He steals a lot, but he'll hit 15, 10 to 15 homers. He's got a high batting average. You want to sh- probably shy away from players who are one-category guys, even though good. I mean, take a look at Giancarlo Stanton. You know, if you had Giancarlo Stanton on your roster, it means you were expecting some 45 home runs. That's a risk. Because if he is not there because of injury, you have to make up 45 home runs. That's very, very, very tough to do in the waiver wire. Maybe you can find the guy who's going to hit 25, but you're going to have a 20 home run uh, uh, gap uh, if Stanton goes down. You're far better off getting a player who can do a combo so that, let's say, they only are projected to hit 25 homers but steal 12 bases, well, now you can make up that homers off the waiver wire, or you can make up that, that stolen bases off the waiver wire. Um, it's about risk management at the top um, in doing that. In an auction, it, it's exactly what I said before. You might think about paying that high price. It might not be worth it. You might get a better return on investment if you spend in the middle. Um, you know, Again, for pitchers, this year I showed that the better return on investment was to spend on one ace. Spend that $35 and get that one ace, and then drop to the bottom. Don't play in the middle. Um, you know, it, it, this, this just shows you where the values are. Right, and the counter-argument to that is when you put all your uh, pitching eggs in the basket of your ace, you run into the possibility, at least, of getting Chris Sale rather than getting Max Scherzer. Yeah, I mean, the, the, but, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, up top, there was Scherzer, there was Verlander, there was Cole, there was even Kershaw for a lot of value. There was actually a higher percentage chance that if you picked an ace, you would hit. As opposed to going in the middle, there was quite a few busts 
you know, so uh, yeah, it, sure. It, you know, it's it, it, any time you spend money at the top, uh, it, you know, it, there's there's going to be a risk if you have an ace there. But of course, the better players are at the top. They're going to give you you know the, the more value. You know, it, it just in terms of injury. You know, is it better to have a forty dollar player or two twenty dollar players in terms of injury? Well, I mean each. Each one is just as likely to get injured, so you say well, you're better off with 20. But of course, you know if you have the 40 guy, well, he's twice as good as everybody else. So you know it goes both ways in terms of risk. Right, and at a certain point, I think we all have to agree that we can project and we can calculate and we can make up these matrices and and we can do all of this planning. And the bottom line is, you. We just don't really know. You know, we have to ex- accept the fact that one year out of 10, Chris Sale's going to be awful. We have to accept the possibility that one year out of four, Giancarlo Stanton is going to get hurt and miss the whole year. Those things happen, and there's nothing you can do to look at your tables and your projections and stuff and, and uh, fix that. But what you can do is ameliorate the risk. Yeah, and, and you don't expect to win your fantasy league every single time. You know, the idea is to win, be in the money, and finish towards the top a uh, much higher percentage time than everybody else. You know, I play in six, seven different leagues. I'm probably going to win two of them. I'm not going to win all of them, uh, but that's okay as long as you're winning more than, than not. And you do that by doing the better value play at each stage, even though one league, <laughs> that might be a total bust by the players you take. It's random, but you want to control the randomness and over time you will. That leads me to an interesting question that I've had discussions with here at Baseball HQ Radio and offline, and that is, are you a proponent of taking the same player in lots of situations, or are you a proponent of, if I've got Christian Yelich in this league, I'm going to try to avoid getting him in that league because I don't want to be exposing myself to a Christian Yelich injury of, of sinking five teams? Um. I'm really of the mindset that if you see a bargain is tremendous preseason, then it's okay to to get that bargain over and over again. And the bigger the bargain that you foresee, the more and more you want to grab the player. I mean, preseason, I had Josh Bell, even it was one of my uh, boons, my boons on the show. Josh Bell and Eddie Rosario were my boons, and because I value them much higher than everybody else. I will tend to get more and more shares. I don't have them on every league, but I might have them on 70% of my leagues. Uh, I'm okay with doing that because they were big bargains. If there were players that I just showed as small bargains, maybe I'll have them on a few teams. I even had players on my team that I thought were terrible bargains, but since they fell to me and uh, the price was okay for what I paid, I had them. Um, you know, the short answer is, is I'm totally fine with, with, with doing it. I don't really have this overexposed thing uh, because, you know, on one side you can, you know, you can definitely lose if there's an injury and, and so on and so forth. On the upside, you know, you can really, really gain. Now, if you're trying to, you know, do this big money thing, you know, and you're talking about correlating portfolios, yeah, you certainly don't want to be exposed in 80, 90 percent of your leagues. You know, there is a thing to that, that, you know, any risk should be capped at a certain point. But I think it's okay to, 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 to get two-thirds of your leagues to get a tremendous bargain. Nothing wrong with that. And also, it's worth pointing out that uh, when you uh, have identified a player you think is going to be a, a really good bargain, chances are his price is also going to be fairly low because that's where the bargain nature comes in. And if that's the case and he doesn't pan out, you may be able to replace him. Well, you certainly will be able to replace him more easily from the free agent pool than if you you know, sunk all your 
all your money into Mike Trout or Christian Yelich and they got hurt, or Giancarlo Stanton, who did get hurt. Right, yeah, 100%. There's a difference in saying that, oh, uh, uh, Christian Yelich, uh, Mike Trout, Christian Yelich are big bargains, I'm going to get him in every league, whereas uh, I think Max Fried is a big bargain, I'm going to get him in every league, but of course, that every get him in every league was $1. That doesn't work out in every league, well, you cut $1 in every league, that's not very risky, right? No, exactly. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and Rotographs, CBS Sports, and the Beat the Shift podcast. And Ariel, a uh, lot of talk, of course, about the deadline. Uh, what players did you think uh, got helped by moving at the deadline? And uh, we know about Zach Greinke, but give us some nuggets uh, that you thought might have acquired some extra value. I wrote about this in the Tau table this week. Uh, I think that uh, some players on Detroit with the moving of Nick Castellanos can get some time. Uh, guys like Jacoby Jones and Nico Goodrum, I think those players, they're uh, uh, power-speed combo guys. They might have a low batting average, but you know now they're going to get a lot of playing time. They're going to rack up those counting stats, and they might even run more because Detroit's now a weaker team. They might need some more runs in a pinch. So, And, hey, they're out of it, so why not just go, go run and show your skills? I think those are two players that, that actually uh, might help you. I mean, if you're looking on the waiver wire for players, what better is a player who could be 2020? I mean, that, that's got to be somebody that you can zoom in on right away. Which players did you think got hurt by the moves? Uh, I would say that uh, Joe Panic from San Francisco got hurt. Uh, you know, when Scooter Jeanette comes back from injury, Panic's probably going to lose his job. Uh, I think Trevor Bauer loses, uh, loses going uh, to uh, a worse park, uh, worse team that's going to hurt his win total, his ERA total. Bauer would be a guy that I would say would be hurt. And, uh, of course, we saw some closers changing teams, and that means that there are vacancies to fill. A lot of times, though, Ariel, I've had people on the show and uh, outside the show say, yeah, there's some guys stepping into closer roles, but <laughs> not so sure they're going to be able to run with it. Uh, did you spot any rising new closers that piqued your interest? Well, I think uh, Jose LeClerc, who uh, actually came to be a new closer last year in the second half, I think he might regain his role. I mean, Texas signed him to a multi-year contract in the offseason. He, he was brilliant last year's second half. Maybe he can do that again. I, I'd probably look at him. Uh, I think Nick Anderson going over to Tampa, uh, he, he loved his strikeout rate on him. I think that he, he can fall into some saves. Um, Joe Jimenez, not the best pitcher, but... You know, he's going to be a new closer in Detroit, and that could be there. And uh, not, a, not a trade thing, but I think Seth Lugo um, might actually take over the closer role in the short term from Edwin Diaz. He saved the game last night that I went to. Uh, Seth Lugo might be a new closer, and he's been brilliant the last couple of months. Uh, I think you might want to look at him, probably even more than some of these other guys. Nick Anderson of 14.4 strikeouts per nine so far this year. And, you know, if you're in Tampa, when you look at that team, they're very uh, easy about moving the saves around. They're not wedded to the whole idea. They're kind of an advanced analytic team. And, you know, I know he walks a few guys, but gosh almighty, he's striking out for like two out of three. That's quite something. Uh, we talked about earlier in the pod, Ariel, that you're an actuary. Your specialty in business is the appropriate quantifying and managing of risk. And you believe that managing risk is also an element of sound fantasy team management. Uh, how does that apply? Well, I mean, you know, winning fantasy baseball is not just about picking the best players. I mean, everybody in your league is, is doing the same thing. 
And there's so much information being delivered today by, by providers, by all the great content out in the industry, writers, great podcasts like yours, like mine. Um, there's less and less sleepers. You can't, oh, I'm going to take this guy as a sleeper. I mean, it's really hard to find these sneaky good players. So I think that you really need to improve upon is your team construct uh, right now, uh, uh, risk management, maximizing your value subject to lowering your risk. That's something that people don't aren't that conscious of now that I think that you could take advantage of that. You know, from, from the start of the season, you have to have the composure in your draft or auctions to take on the right amount of risk. You, you, you don't want to take all risky players, you know, because that, that's pretty risky. You also don't want to take all safe players, and especially if you're in an overall uh, league where, like the NFBC where you, know, you just got to jump up and, and be there. You need to take on some amount of risk. I mentioned before the example of Giancarlo Stanton. You know, in order to buy Giancarlo Stanton, I think that you need to get a bigger bargain, a bigger reduction in price for him. Because if you, if he somehow gets injured, that's 45 home runs down the tube there. You can still buy him, but he's more risky. Therefore, the price has to drop a little bit so that uh, you, know, you get a little bit more of a bargain to commensurate with the risk. I think you need to think about these things at the top. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero, uh, Jr., you know, he's a risk. He's a rookie. You need to drop his price a little bit in order to buy him. You could buy him, but it has to be a little bit lower than you would. Otherwise, you're, you know, your expected value return is going to be low, and you're taking too much risk for the amount of money that you pay. I think you need to be conscious of riskiness of players uh, all throughout the draft. And I mentioned a lot at the top. At the bottom, you know, you want to take guys who are upside. If, if, if there's a $1 or $2 player there, you don't want to always just take players who are safe $1 players. Well, I'll get his at-bats. You want to take some players that might jump up. You know, Garrett Hampson, I mentioned, was a terrible bargain this year, and I don't have – I never drafted – Hampson at all in any of my teams, but if you did and he was only worth a dollar or two, that's a fine risk. If he was worth 10 in your league, you shouldn't buy him. You should buy players with one or two that have upside that can gain. So, you know, that whole risk assessment has to be done throughout the entire draft. You know, go for the floor on the top, go for the upside on the bottom, and the prices that you pay should be commensurate with the risk that you have to take on. It's interesting. You could almost quantify the risk as positive and negative risk, right? Because you're just talking about variability. And uh, in a way, a $1 bottom player with upside has negative risk uh, because the, the risk is all in your favor. The, the risk that he's going to be a zero player doesn't matter because he's only $1 to you. But the risk or the probability or possibility that he's going to be a $15 player almost amounts to a negative risk. You could add up your risk saying, uh, you know, Giancarlo Stanton's a, a plus four risk because he's really adding to my risk profile. But, uh, you know, grabbing some $1 guy at the end that you think has a shot is a kind of a minus three risk and you can kind of balance these things out and offset them. Yeah, and, uh, and on my latest uh, edition of the Great Fantasy Baseball, Baseball Invitational Podcast, the Beat the Shift editions, we had on Chris Liss, and we, we discussed the concept of having sort of risk-adjusted projections. You know, at the top, uh, you know, instead of you know, most projections that come out are just averages. Here's the average projection, expected production. But at the top, really it should be more of uh, more floor, uh, 40th percentile, 30th percentile, what he could be in a, in a bad year. At the bottom, the projections 
equations that you use to calculate values really should be something like a 70th percentile, what a guy could jump up to. Um, you know, that's a little bit more complicated to do, and you know, that's something I want to tackle in the off-season. But you know, getting the risk-adjusted projections and risk-adjusted prices, that really is the way to, to draft so that you can say, all right, this guy, you know, on an expected basis, maybe not so good, but he can jump up. You know, or this guy is not, this guy, if he has a bad year, he won't clobber you. Um, I think that when you draft, you need to have those pieces of information in mind. That would be a tremendous benefit. And a shout-out here to Ron Chandler. His BAB system actually incorporates uh, risk considerations in trying to uh, draft accurately by uh, identifying High risk, higher risk players, and trying to minimize the number of them on your roster. Uh, it's a pretty good system. I, I think that Ron has, has really done a great start, and that concept is so so true. I, I think that uh, if you're not statistics, it's the risk that you're taking on. I think that you need to balance it. I, I, I want to go a step further than him and really quantify it more, but that concept is absolutely the way to go these days. You mentioned the uh, Beat the Shift podcast with Chris Liss and your friend and partner, Ruvain Guy. Something that came up in that discussion was the difference, but a kind of a complementary difference, if I can say, between risk and aggressiveness. Uh, how did you guys decide the, or discuss that these two ideas kind of balance each other? Um, let, let's use a poker analogy here. You know, there's, there's different playing styles, and there's two components to each player. Uh, one is tight versus loose. That's in the amount of time that you play. And the other is being passive or aggressive in the amount of chips that you push. I think that, uh, you know, aggressiveness would be, would be that passive aggressive. You know, when you push, you got to push. You know, you don't want to just, oh, I like him, I'll dink it in. Um, but in terms of risk is deciding when to play, uh, sort of the frequency. Do I play often? Do I want to take shots often? Or do I want to wait for the gambles? Um, you know, I think that, that it's a frequency thing. We were talking actually specifically about fab in terms of, you know, what's risky and what's being aggressive. I think it's okay to be aggressive on the fab, but you don't want to be put out money all the time. Uh, every week, you don't have to bid on, oh, who's the top player that you want to get. I think that you have to pick your spots, wait and see what your need is, and then be aggressive when, when you do that. It's not risky to be aggressive and put a lot of, of money when you need it. Um, that's what you should do to lower your risk. But to just willy-nilly, you know, I think I'm going to bid. I mean, I remember the, the Fab of Palooza week. Um, I, I didn't spend all that much money. Um, a lot of people, oh, you got to get somebody, got to get somebody. Y you could, but, you know, it's a risk to do that. By the way, there was a guy named Jordan Alvarez who might have been around later, and if you had the cash to get him later on, probably was a bigger value. So, you know, it, it, I think they can be complementary. Just to close out this part of the discussion, Ariel, you mentioned Giancarlo Stanton and the risk that he presented because uh, if he wasn't able to play or had a bad year, you were really coming up way short of your expectations on home runs. For the last couple of years before this year, Giancarlo Stanton actually played quite a lot and he wasn't injured. And so is the risk that you associate with Giancarlo Stanton at the time of the draft more related to the possibility of injury, or is it more related to the just the eggs in one basket of the home runs? It's it's the eggs in one basket. Uh, I, I I mean, I, I there is something I guess to to people having an injury risk. 
but no, my, my, my point was more towards the excellent bass with the categories. I take a guy like a Chris Davis, with the Chris Davis with the K, that is. Um, I thought before the season, this guy is an inherently safe guy. I mean, if nothing else, he's going to, to hit your 40 home runs. He can have whatever batting, 247 batting average, whatever it is. Uh, but he's going to get you your home runs. He is inherently safe. I thought, I thought the same thing about Joey Gallo. Um, and the truth is they are safe players. But if you don't have them, then you're losing 40 home runs. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, more the, it's more the egg zone basket. Less of the injury is from what I was saying. But, of course, you know, injury risk is a real thing. Um, you know, there are players who are chronically injured, and, and there is something to it, I think. In the case of Stanton, he had that reputation earlier in his career, but as I said, over the last few years, he's actually been, you know, not exactly 100% reliable, but he's had enormous uh, plate appearance totals, at-bat totals, uh, five, 600 over the last couple of years. So coming into it, I think maybe some people talk themselves into, you know, he's safe from the injury perspective, but in uh, past years, he's missed uh, some significant playing time, and I think you have to kind of put that in the back of your mind at least. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and Rotographs, CBS, and uh, the Beat the Shift podcast, a very good podcast. Uh, during the season, Ariel, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about their boons and banes for the balance of the season. Uh, let's start with your boons, these are guys you think should interest our listeners uh, in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon? Well, it's so funny, Patrick. I was actually listening to you yesterday on Scott Pianalfi's podcast, and you gave your boon of uh, Willie Calhoun, which was actually the same guy I was going to do. So I'll, I'll do uh, actually two others for you here. Uh, Justin Smoke and Renato Nunez. I think Justin Smoke has a very large difference between his WOBA and his ex-WOBA. You know, if you look at his stack cast numbers, you know, they're brilliant. He's got a 214 Babbitt currently. I mean, he started off hot in the year in April and May, and he just cooled off uh, late in the season. Um, but he's a guy that really can, can hit 30, 35 home runs in a year. I think he can absolutely revert back. He's hitting the ball harder than ever. Justin Smoke is a guy, and of course we'll get the playing time. And Renato Nunez, um, I wrote an article earlier this year comparing him to Chris Davis. Uh, this guy has such a high line drive rate, high fly ball rate, high hard contact rate. I mean, he has 25 homers to date. If he had 30, which is just five more, he'd be fifth in the Major League Baseball. Um, Renato Nunez is a guy you can get for power, and he's still available in some leagues. Um, those are my uh, AL Boone hitters. Yeah, I noticed Ruvain picked up Renato Nunez uh, in the uh, league that, uh, the Fantasy Baseball Invitational League that he and I are both in the same division, actually. Uh, I'm second or third right now, and he's running away with the uh, division and also first overall. And I heard on your guys' podcast how surprised he was that, uh, first of all, that Nunez ended up available in the free agent pool, and second of all, that not very many people put in bids. Weird. Who's your National League boon hitter? I'm going to go with Ender Inciarte, who's currently only 35% owned. Uh, preseason, he was a favorite of mine. He was an undervalued player, but he really struggled. Maybe it was injury-related. I don't know. His last few games, he's batting in the last week or so, he's batting 470 with two homers and two stolen bases. When he came back from injury, he was batting eighth. The Braves have now moved him up to batting sixth in the slot. Now, Austin Riley has taken a seat amid a slump, so he's getting more regular playing time in Ciarte as they push for the playoffs. Um, I think that if you need steals and you need some batting average help on your team, I mean, Ciarte is a guy that can really fit right in, and I think he can run with it. 
Over to the mound and the American League. Who's a pitcher you think could be a boon? Uh, Tanner Roark. Uh, he's actually one of the people that I believe, uh, as a result of the trade deadline, actually also gained in value. He's only 50% owned, but he throws a lot of strikeouts, about one per inning. Um, he, had, he had one bad outing at Coors Field a couple of weeks ago where he gave up seven earned runs. But his ERA prior to that, and if you take out that runs, it would be 350. Um, now he goes from Cincinnati to Oakland. He's on a better team. Um, you know, if he lasts five innings, he can gain a lot more wins, and he typically goes more than that. I think the change of scenery is worth about a half run in ERA. Um, so he's a guy that might be under own now that I think can actually be really successful in Oakland. Yeah, when you talk about park effect changes, boy, you, you can't get much better for a pitcher than going from Great American Ballpark. Uh, Baseball HQ's three-year running averages for home run power are like plus 24, plus 17, right and left. And uh, if you go to Oakland, they're minus 16, minus 15. So it's like he's getting these like 50% home run changes, and uh, that was a bit of a problem for him. So, yeah, uh, Tanner Roark could, could be the biggest beneficiary of all in the, this year's trading. Uh, how about in the National League? National League, I'm going to go with uh, a reliever for this one, Giovanni Gallegos. I have been all over this guy from the start of the season. Um, I have a new pitching metric called WPDI, Weighted Plate Discipline Index, and for the first month or two, he was at the top of the list. The, the WPDI metric is, in a nutshell, tracking how often pitchers throw a strike and the, the pitch is not swung at or it gets or swung at and missed, and uh, how much they throw outside the zone, yet it's swung on and not made contact with. Um, it's just deceptiveness. And Giovanni Gallegos really ranks among the top of all of baseball for that. Um, this guy is sporting a 13K per nine. He's got 73 strikeouts. He's not a closer. He's a middle reliever. He's not going to get you saved, but those ratios and the strikeouts are, are, are amazing. Um, you've got a 209 ERA and a .75 whip. That's a .75 whip. That is going to help your team. Um, he hasn't given up an earned run in over a month. He only issued five walks since early May. He is the equivalent of an $11 fantasy player without even being a closer or starter. I mean, $11 player, that, that's worth just as much as, like, a Rodas Chapman. That's, that's worth as much as Trey Turner has given you this year. Um, this is a guy that absolutely can help you, and almost nobody even knows who he is. Um, he's on St. Louis. He was gotten there by uh, trading away Luke Voigt to the Yankees. Giovanni Gallegos, look him up. He is fantastic. And with those skills, if anything should happen in the closer hierarchy, uh, certainly he has a pathway. Uh, we have him at Baseball HQ as a $13 player this year. And when I looked at that number, Ariel, the first thing that popped into my mind was that's about where Josh Hader was when he was not getting saves, uh, like his pre-closer days, just because of the strikeouts and the great ratios. And if you said to yourself, if you told somebody, how would you like to get a guy for free on the waiver wire who is this year's Josh Hader? I think they'd have to be listening. Uh, Ariel Cohen's boons are Justin Smoke of Toronto, Renato Nunez of Baltimore, Ender Inciardi of Atlanta, Tanner Roark of Oakland, Giovanni Gallegos of St. Louis. Uh, over to the Baines. Ariel, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? Well, I, I was looking at Yohan Mankata, but it's unfair to use him because he's injured now. So I'm going to go with uh, Tim Anderson, who's just coming back from injury. Um, 
Tim Anderson is a guy who often gets off to a great start in the year, as he did this year. I mean, last year he had like a 270 batting average in, in the first couple of months, and then he batted 230 the rest of the way. And in an OBP league, he's pretty horrific either way. Um, his bat of this year is 362. He's, he's somewhat unlucky. Um, if you're having Tim Anderson in your team, you're counting on him for stolen bases. But he had a high ankle sprain, uh, and he, he was out since June 25th. And it typically takes another couple of weeks after you come back to finally start running again. Um, so I, I'd be wary that he's going to get his stolen bases. And I also watched him last week when the Mets were playing him, and he didn't seem quite right. He, he, he booted a couple of balls. He didn't move well on defense. Uh, I would just shy away from Tim Anderson. I don't think he's going to be quite what you think he's, he, he was. Uh, have you told Ruvain this? He, uh, Tim Anderson's on his uh, terrific uh, fantasy baseball invitational team. I mean, if you have a player like Tim Anderson on your team in a deep 15 uh, team league, there's nothing you can do other than to play him. He also had uh, Indrelton Simmons, who just went down. So uh, he doesn't have, really have much choice. He has to play Anderson. But, uh, yeah, he's somebody that I would shy away from if, if you can help it, especially in shallow leagues. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? Let's go with uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. I, I mean, th- I think Tatis is a wonderful player, um, but he's a rookie, and I always worry about uh, what I call the rookie wall late in the season. I mean, Austin Riley, he hit that rookie wall. He, he stopped having production after a certain point. Uh, I'm really glad for San Diego that they brought him up instead of keeping him down early in the season. Uh, I think it's great, but look, look at Tatis's bat at 424. That is completely unsustainable. Even a 350 bat is unsustainable. Um, he's got a 45% ground ball rate, so he hits balls in the ground. He's got a 30% strikeout rate. His batting average is going to go way down. And, of course, if you're not on base, then you're not going to steal as many bases, which is a big part of his fantasy value. And he's not even running that much anyway. He only has one stolen base in the last month, possibly because of the injury he had earlier this year. Um, in terms of power, his fly, homer-to-fly ball ratio is at 30%. That is pretty unsustainable unless your name is Chris Davis or Reynado Nunez. He's a real, great real-life player but, and a great player for a keeper league or a dynasty league, but temper your expectations for him for the rest of 2019. I should point out that uh, 36% hit rate or a 360 BABIP, um, we think of those things as completely unsustainable, but there are some mitigating factors, especially foot speed, uh, the ability to get from home to first. You get up, you know, uh, an extra ground ball single, uh, an infield single once a week. All of a sudden that BABIP can really climb, and, and it actually is justifiable. Uh, I agree, though. I think Tatis might be uh, struggling foot speed-wise. I haven't checked his uh, stat cast speed metric, but uh, I'd like to see if it's uh, slowed him down any. Yeah, I mean, in terms of BABIP, uh, sure, some players are going to have a higher BABIP. And Tim Anderson, his career BABIP is 330. You know, that's fine, but not, not four, 424. That's just completely out of the norm. Yeah, it is. Over to the mound again uh, in the American League. Who's a Bane pitcher for you? So it's Mike Miner. He's got an ERA of about three. But look at his uh, other ERA estimators. His FIP is 42 Exit 4.4, Sierra 4.35. Uh, he should be pitching to about a run and a quarter higher than he is. He is walking more people than year th- this year than ever. He's walking almost a full batter more per nine innings. Um, his strand rate is, uh, I, th- I think Baseball HQ, they call it the strand rate, is at 85%. That is incredibly lucky. In fact, in the month of June, his strand rate was 96%. 
96 out of 100 batters don't score. Uh, that, that's just due for a major, major correction. So uh, Mike Miner is my uh, bane. Had a good start earlier this week uh, in Cleveland. Uh, National League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, Mike Soroka. He had a fantastic first half, and he's been one of the best bargain pitchers uh, this year. It's unbelievable 2.37 ERA. But, uh, again, the same kind of analysis as with Mike Miner. His, his uh, other ERA estimators are about a, a full run higher. In fact, his Sierra is at 4.13, almost two, two full runs higher uh, than, than what he should be pitching to. And he has a, also a very, very high strand rate at 80%. Now, Soroka, I think, still has a value because he has a fantastic walk rate. So if uh, whip is important to you, Soroka still will have a value. But he is he's not a big strikeout pitcher anyway. His K per nine is, is just, uh, just over seven. Um, you know, if you're counting on that ERA as a big part of his value, you're not going to get it. Uh, so, again, it's just a guy who's okay, but uh, he's due for a major, major correction second half. R.L. Cohen's Baines, Tim Anderson of the White Sox, Fernando Tatis Jr. of San Diego, Mike Miner of Texas, Mike Soroka of Atlanta. Uh, R.L., tell our listeners where they can catch up with uh, your reading, uh, your writing, your podcasting, all that stuff. Well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at A-T-C-N-Y, which is only five letters. That's got to be the shortest Twitter handle for any fantasy baseball analyst you can find, ATCNY. You can read my work over at Fangraphs, Rotographs section. Uh, my ATC projections are up there on the Fangraphs site. Uh, I also write for CBS Sports and for Sportsline, and you can listen to my podcast, which is called The Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational Podcast. You can look that up. They are the Beat the Shift editions. Really is a terrific podcast that I do with uh, my buddy Ruven Guy, and we really get on fantastic people on the show as well. Um, if, you, if you like the strategy discussions, that's definitely the podcast you should listen to. We don't just talk about players. We talk about when to pick up somebody, how much to bid on somebody, the theory of when to drop somebody when they're cold, just everything that you, you want to think about, and, 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 and then you can think whether you would agree with us or not, and it just spurns great discussion. So uh, listen to us, uh, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational Podcast. And I should say in the uh, interests of diversity that uh, Ruvain and Ariel are also willing, in addition to excellent, knowledgeable guests, I've been on that show as well. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrific show, first of all. It's very well researched, and uh, I, I really appreciated my chance to be on that show, and uh, I can recommend it very highly. Uh, once again, Ariel, thanks very much for being with us, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs and CBS and co-hosts the Beat the Shift podcast. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for Talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. In your latest Z-Files column, you offered some advice on potentially 
targetable hitters, I'll call them, who might be available because they don't fit the model of what we think of as the ideal hitter, the guy we want, the guy who bats high in the batting order of a productive offense. These guys don't necessarily bat high in the order or they don't play for productive offenses or both. Where did you get this idea? Yeah, it's fun. Here, yeah, here's a glimpse behind the mind of someone who's been doing this over 20 years. I write the I write the daily notes column for ESPN three times a week. We we take a look at players who are uh, available in over 50% of ESPN leagues, and we look for good matchups, and we go through by position, and 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 give them a little thumbnail sketch as to why they're a good a good fit that day. So when you do this column, you know as much as I do, you you want to be different. You can't you know, you can't rely on Statcast every single time. It gets boring. So I think it was Lurie Garcia, who's one of the pl- players I wrote about. Uh, just uh, he had a good matchup, so now I got to find something to talk about. And just happened to notice that he's 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 prorating or, or pacing for over 100 runs. I looked up with the White Sox, and they're like third from the last in 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 runs scored for a team. So you know the the narrative was was you know it's especially on on days where there's not a lot of choices. You can't be picky. Sometimes you have to look for players you normally pass over. And, you know, this is an example. Someone who's on a, a second division team, he does hit leadoff, and the, the the top of the order is productive. So especially if you need runs, don't overlook Lurie Garcia. And I think I actually, that was part of the, the blurb that I wrote. In the, he was part of the piece that I wrote uh, for, for the uh, Rotowire, the Z file. So that's kind of, it's just kind of how it, uh, it emanated. And then that, just writing that, you know how it is. Sometimes you, you search for a topic all week when you have a weekly piece and just something pops in your head. And as I was writing that early in the week, I was like, ah, make a note. That's your Rotowire topic this week. Players on, on second division teams that are that are producing. And other than second division teams, did you have any rules for picking out these particular hitters over others? Well, what I... Um not really. I, I, I ran the, the, the monthly rotisserie, the, the, the rotisserie values for the past month and just look for some, the, the, basically the, the highest ranking positive contributors on second division teams. And then I, I quickly glanced through the roster level, the, 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 roster, the rostership levels. There's a, there's a movement in fantasy now to avoid using the word ownership. One of my one of my the places I write for, it's it's a matter of fact it's 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 I don't use the word forbidden, but uh, we're not supposed to do it. So I'm I'm out of the habit of using ownership. So I have to make up words like rostership now. So uh, anyway, there. So I uh, I looked the rostership up of of these players on some NFPC leagues and on ESPN. I wanted to make sure I wasn't choosing somebody that you know the you know comments. Well, everybody you know he's 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 universally owned. There we go using the word owned. He's universally rostered. So I uh, I did find some players that at least I thought about including the numbers in the piece. But sometimes it gets too distracting. It doesn't really matter how many people on how many rosters in in the NFPC or ESPN. The point remains the same. So sometimes. You, you put too much. It sounds like helpful, but it just gets distracting. So I, I kept that out and just used the uh, the amount, amount I've earned in each of those leagues and have people trust that I wouldn't choose people. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, go pick up Mike Trout. You know, that sort of thing. Well, let's look at a couple of examples. Uh, you mentioned Larry Garcia earlier. The first one that caught my eye was Anthony Santander of Baltimore. I had him on my tout team a few years ago, but I was just in early. I liked the skills, but he 
just wasn't ready and he didn't get a lot of playing time. He had mm. a cup of coffee and didn't do well. And that was the last we heard of him. He's back this year and he's really doing well. Uh, you have his v- value over the last month at $22 for a 15 team mix. That's really good. Uh, uh, what was it about Anthony Santander, just the value that caught your eye? Well, yeah. And again, just my perception or how I feel about players doesn't always match the, the public, obviously, but in my mind, Santander, you know, I do projections and rankings and all that sort of thing. And every, you know, every year, you mentioned you had him a couple of years ago. So he's been in the, at least been in the, in the, on, the on the radar for, for a couple of years now. And I look on the prospect rankings, et cetera. And there's always a Baltimore outfielder or two that are ranked ahead of him. So the question is, is he a, a fourth outfielder? Is he a reserve? Is he a platoon outfielder? What is what is his role? And he's always been a little bit down the, down the group. So I have this predetermined... I guess a bias against him right to from the beginning, he's not that good or he's not ranked that high on prospect list. So if he comes up, it's just his reserve, et cetera. So I, maybe I'm the only one that feels that way, but I sometimes, you know, what's the, what's the thing in school? Don't be afraid to ask a question because someone else probably has the same question. So maybe someone else has that same predetermined notion of Santander, Santander. I'm, my bank is Santander. So I don't, I assume it's Santander how to pronounce his name. Uh, a lot of tangents today. Just one of those days. Anyway, um, he's been playing regularly, and he Austin Hayes came into the year as a higher-ranked outfielder, using El Diaz, who they acquired from the Dodgers, is a, a good part of the Orioles' future. So when Suntender came up, I think the Orioles just decided this is the perfect opportunity. Mark Trumbo's not playing. Not that not that they should be looking at him anyway. If I, you know, Trumbo's biggest contribution this season. Was uh, was was taking was keeping Chris Davis from from punching out the manager a couple of days ago. So at least at least Trumbo, although there's speculation if that uh, if if Trumbo if, if Davis would have throw a punch, whether it actually would have hit anything or not. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, so Santander has played pretty regularly the past month. He's had some good batted ball fortune, but even so, if you if you regress or revert to expected numbers it's still pretty helpful so if you're kind of shunning if you have an, uh, if in your head as ah, Tanner's not that good he's on baltimore well he's sitting on the uh, near the top of the order it's still a good park there's still a couple good hitters in the lineup so to me he's a guy that can help you in batting average it's not a it's not a it's not a category we talk a lot about primarily because with home runs up so much it, it, it's 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 influence runs and RBI so much more than normal that it's tough to focus on batting average and and not lose points elsewhere. But if you're in a unique situation where that's the case, Santander is someone who could potentially help you. This the batting average bar is a little bit lower this year, so someone like that can actually help you. Pittsburgh outfielder Brian Reynolds was kind of supposed to be a placeholder for all of the Pittsburgh outfielders who were hurt coming back, but uh, one way or the other, they either stayed hurt and didn't come back, or in the case of Corey Dickerson, got traded away from the team entirely. So Brian Reynolds has managed to keep playing and keep playing pretty well. $19 in a 15-team valuation. Uh, What more is there to say about uh, Brian Reynolds? You like him. Yeah, and um, he was actually... Uh, not a top prospect, but he's a highly drafted player that just kind of got lost in the weeds. Pittsburgh hasn't produced a ton of talent, but there, there's, there's always, there is, there's always been somewhat of a high-profile 
Austin Meadows is now they traded Tampa. There's always been some somebody higher profile than Reynolds, so he's kind of gotten lost in the weeds. And as you mentioned, he's the circumstances have dictated playing a lot more than initially expected. Remember, you know, he even had remember you know they acquired Lonnie Chisenhall to be to to take Corey Dickerson's spot until Dickerson was healthy, and Chisenhall hasn't seen the field yet this year. So the fact that Reynolds is hitting well isn't an, it's not an out of nowhere scenario. It's just that he's been sort of under the radar and and kind of like and and kind of like Santander, he's playing over his skis a bit. If you take a look at Statcast and they have the expected average and expected slug and and Baseball HQ has their own uh, metrics of that of that nature. The expected numbers are higher. His actual production is higher than you know what's expected based upon the underlying metrics. However, if he were producing at the expected numbers, a 297 batting average, a 360 expected WOBA, those are good numbers. Those are both, as I said, fantasy friendly. So the 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 Pirates are scoring, I think, at the time 19th most runs, and it's dropped a little bit because Josh Bell has has really fallen off. Since the, uh, I'm not exactly sure when, but let's just say over the second half. So Reynolds is hitting in the two hole. There's still you know, Starling Marte's back. There's still some decent production. So Reynolds is a guy that if you you know if you if you dismiss that Pittsburgh doesn't score runs, I don't want Reynolds. The fact that he's hitting second in the top you know, near the top of the order is a good thing, and he can help. He's not gonna not gonna crush all the categories, but he's not gonna hurt much either. And I think sometimes a mistake that we can make if we're not being careful about looking at these things is we look at a team and we say oh, it's a very low run scoring lineup. It's a, they're not producing a lot of runs. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm uh, less interested than I might be otherwise. But really, oftentimes the reason is they don't have lineup depth rather right. than they don't have a good lineup. The top of the order, the first four or five, six guys can be producing like crazy, but in, right. especially in the National League, you've got those seven, eight, nine guys who are doing nothing, and they kind of drag the total down. And I think you have to be careful about that, that there might be some uh, you know nuggets of gold in the, in the river of mediocrity that s- sometimes seems to pop up when a team has an overall run scoring deficit or an overall production deficit because it isn't uniformly spread across all nine uh, batting order slots. Right. And that's if, if Josh, you know, I'm going to assume we still have little, well, now it's under two months, but you know, still close to seven weeks left. Josh Bell's probably going to regain his stroke and Reynolds is going to be, you know, that should maybe counter some of the regression that he's doing because he is out over his skis a bit. So that can always help. And, and the thing about these players it's real easy to write a piece in March or talk to you on a podcast in March and say only target top five hitters on the on the top half offenses. Well, you can't do that, you know, because everybody knows that this isn't a secret, right? So the the supply and demand. Eventually, you're going to have to fill in some of your back end roster spots with some of these players on second division teams. And, you know, you just, you just can't do it. I, I've heard NFBC people give, you know, the, the, I only draft people in the top, you know, five of the batting order on, on run-scoring teams. Well, no, you don't. You're, you're lying. Either that or you're in a league with, with, a, with a computer drafter that's trying to do poorly because there's just not enough players to fit that bill. So you're forced to take these players, and especially this time of year where when injuries set in and, and everything else. So... It's uh, it's 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 nice to say focus on these other sort of hitters. You can, you can do it in DFS as an example. But when we're on these season-long rotisseries, just supply and demand. You have to 
you have to dedicate some roster spots to some players like this. Well, you play a fair amount of DFS, uh, I know, and it makes me curious when they when the DFS uh, companies set the salaries for the players who are going to play, is there an element of um, pricing based on how attractive the player is probably going to be to the audience, or do they just do it based on their expected value full stop? Different sites. I don't. I don't have the. I don't have. I don't have the engine to any of these things. I don't know. It just and I'm not playing nearly as much as I did previously. And I, different sites do different things. One of the sites, popular sites, does just that. They have the the, the pricing a little more friendly so that you can get more stars in your lineup. So you're rooting for, you know, for players that, you know, that you know and and, and will be on featured in highlights, etc. Another major site has what we call sharper pricing where the algorithm does more closely match what their expect what the site's expected production is. And this year, even more so, there's just there's just fewer air quote bargains than there's been in previous seasons. This might be why now why I'm probably not doing nearly as well in DFS as I normally do. I haven't adjusted to A, the run scoring environment where the uh, the old the old adage was just get your pitching points and, and find bats. One of the repercussions of the the way the scoring is, if if, if the sites aren't really changing their algorithms, then the hitters are getting hitters is where you get the points because the offensive environment, you know, pitchers are giving up more runs, giving up more hits, so their points or DFS points have dropped and hitters have gone up. So as far as bang for the buck or efficiency spending, you got to getting good pitching and then hoping to get your hitting doesn't work as well as it has in the past, at least for me, just because the, the flip-flop of where the points are actually coming from. So, and, and I think that it, it, there's, there's, a, there's a parallel in point-scoring fantasy. I don't know that the parallel's there in rotisserie, but um, it's, just, it's something that, that, that I'm thinking about anyway as we're getting closer to the off-season and, uh, and uh, having to get out the projections quickly and this year having to deal with the first pitch Arizona two weeks into October, which is different than normal. So I have to, I'm going to have to get even a quicker start on it, but it's, I'm already been begin thinking about how to approach the, uh, the change in the offensive environment. And finally, uh, I've heard some experts talking about Detroit's Nico Goodrum and you have him on your list as well. And I think two of the things that are attractive about him are, first of all, he's going to bring speed to the table, which is in short supply these days. And second of all, a really good multi-position guy. Yeah. Yeah. First, second, short, and along with outfield. It's not, it's, it's weird. And not so much weird. I actually want to think about this. Whenever you notice things, you know, I want to think about it. The majority of the players I talked about were outfielders. I don't know if that's coincidental or what, but it's, it's the majority of these are outfielders. So maybe, Maybe what that means, and I, I, you know, this this begs a research study. Maybe, maybe when we plan our tout wars and labor and NFBC and home league and et cetera, plan whatever league we're doing, maybe we want to look to fill outfield spots with players on the lesser teams. I'm, or it's just a one-year anomaly, and there's nothing to it. But that's that's just it does beg a it does beg a study to to look at previous seasons and to see where the production comes from on some of these lesser teams. Maybe these maybe second division teams 
are lower because they don't have the quality of infield. I don't know. It's just, it's just a guess. It may just be trash or, you know, noise. Not so much trash, but noise. But it's just, it did catch my eye that of the 10 players discussed, I think eight or nine of them have either it's outfield only or outfield eligibility. But yeah, good, Jimmy. You, you, you hit on the high points, the the uh, the multi-eligibility and the speed. None of these players is a you know, a speed demon, the 10 that I discussed, but if Goodrum had four, he was four for four the past month, and I think Laurie Garcia, who uh, was also four for four the past month, and I'm a numbers guy, but I have a few narratives that I try to incorporate into my gameplay, and one of them is, this. There's, steel seemed, steals pick up for certain players at the end of the year. They set goals, and I've heard them talk about it, and I've heard people interview them talking about it, Goodrum has 12 steals. Maybe he's saying to himself, I want to end the year with 20. It's just a, it's a round number, something to shoot for. What else are you going to do on, on, on that sort of team? So maybe he set a goal that he wants eight more steals. What if he gets to 20 in the middle of September? Now he says, you know what, I want 25. So it's it's narrative. I can't prove it. But there's going to be somebody out there, whether it's Goodrum or someone else, that just runs runs you know, freely over the next seven weeks because they're trying to reach personal goals because there's nothing else to play for. So he seems to fit the mold. He's four for four the past month, so it's not like he's getting caught, as is Lori Garcia, also four for four. So the two of them are just, you know, you gotta you got to hang your hat on something. So I prefer to hang it on a stat cast exit velocity, but if I have to hang it on this guy wants to get better numbers for the back of his baseball card for his next contract, well, you got to do something. Of course, you can't steal first. Uh, Goodrum has been, yeah. what, a 328 OBP you wrote. Uh, but he's walking pretty regularly at 10%, so he should get his chances. Uh, those are, Todd, just three of the 10 hitters in your coverage. You can read about the rest in the Z-Files column at Rotowire. Before we go, earlier in the show, Todd, my guest expert, Ariel Cohen, and you know Ariel, uh, he and I talked in depth about what makes a fantasy trade a fair deal. And you've been a commissioner in tout for a long time, uh, and you've been playing the game uh, forever, basically. What's your take on what constitutes a fair deal in a fantasy league? Yeah, we've we've talked about this too. Is is uh, the it's not in a vacuum player for player value. The it's it's points. It's how much it helps the player. Each team in the standings. To me, anyway, it's con- the convert. It, it, you need to look at the complete roster before and after the deal because it's not just the players that are traded it's those that they're displacing well display replacing and those that are subbing in for the, the the player sometimes it's an outfielder for an outfielder they just go in this they, they take each other's spot and it's just like that but more often than not there has to be some sort of a, a roster balance so it's the points generating ability for me anyway of the roster previous and the roster before and it, it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be i get eight points you get eight points, and, you know, we both, you know, or even standing, I go up three places in the standings, you go up three places in the standings. It doesn't have to be, you know, perfectly matching. It just has to benefit both. You know, maybe the best I can do is move up three spots in the standings or gain eight points, whatever it might be. That, if all, you know, best case scenario, that's all I can do. And in order to get that, the, the, the my trading partner and or partners gain a little more than that well that's what i have to do so you just want to have both teams benefit 
you know, in, in theory, as much as they possibly can. It doesn't have to be perfectly equal. I mean, there's other, there, you know, keeper league trades are a completely different animal because now you're dealing with help for this year and help for next year, and it's and it's league dependent, and there's precedence, and there's good old fashioned horse trading involved. But for a standard, you know, challenge trade this year, two teams in a redraft league, both looking to move up, it has to help both teams. You know, they both have to make the, an honest effort to help them as much as they can. And one complicating factor, and I'll close out with this question, for Ariel, and I've seen some polls on Twitter of late because this is getting to be trading season, and that's the question of suppose you have uh, a player in the first division or in the top top ranks, a, a guy who's got a shot at the title, let's say, or a shot at the money if it's a money league, and he wants to make a trade with somebody who's 10th or 11th or even last in a 12-team league or 15th in a 15-team league, and his argument to uh, say that the trade is fair is that the guy in 15th is going to gain eight or 10 points. I'm going to gain five or six points, but there's a huge contextual difference in that the guy who's in third gaining six points is going to win the league. And the guy gaining eight at the bottom of the league might go from 12th to 11th. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going from 12th to 11th. I think you should try. Uh, I believe in that, but how do you think the position, the relative position in the league standings affects the fairness of a deal? If it's uh, if it's a second place guy dealing with an 11th place guy and they both move up equally, but moving up from second is a lot more important than moving up from from 12th yeah we've we've talked about this too in that um it, it's and I've, I've written about I've, I've had tout tables about this our round table where people talk about it and your 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 excellent point has always been that you know if if the person says well i don't want to affect the race so i'm not going to make this trade by not making the trade you're affecting the race you know, you, 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 there's a valid trade you can make. You move up, but you, you, you feel you don't want to help the first place or second place. You, know, you don't want to help a team solidify their chances to win. Well, by, by you know, by make, you don't want to do it by making the trade. Well, you're, you're doing the same by not making it. So that's, an, that's, to me, the best argument for or, you know, against, you know, being complacent at the bottom. Having said that, that's just that's my when I unfortunately it's been far too much lately including this year when I, I just I, I'm uncomfortable dealing with one of the top teams um, I prefer just to keep grinding from my reserves and from free agency or waivers whatever the league may be and try to rest myself out of the last or second you know gain as many points as I can so it's 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 it's, it's much philosophy I don't think it's a more a more you know morals because I don't think anybody's a bad person if they decide to make a move from last or not to make a move from last. It's fantasy baseball. Far more important things out there. But uh, to me, there still is a philosophy. The only thing I can w- would like to, to add is, if you are a lower division team, you you need to let everybody know that you're willing to deal. And the ones that the, the times that bothers me. Or when a team doesn't make a ton of moves all year long, and that's one of the reasons why they're not doing well, and someone from the top approaches them with a good deal, and they just jump on it right away without looking for something better or letting other teams know that they are willing to move. That's the one. That's the one aspect or the one situation that kind of bugs me is when I don't mind the last place team trading, but let everybody know, hey guys, I hate last place. You know, I, I got 
I, I want to move up to 11. I went to 10th. It's it's good practice to try to gain points, etc. Let everybody know that the you know the, that you're open for, for for trading. Don't just kind of be complacent all season and all of a sudden appear out of the weeds on in you know mid-August making this blockbuster deal without anybody knowing that you even existed. You know that that you were still paying attention. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, but it's pretty hard to enforce, and you know, oh, sure. and, and there are reasons that guys want to make deals with other guys, and and uh, I agree with you. It's a thorny issue, and and really, the way to solve it or to deal with it is everybody in the league has to be mature, and they all have to have a pretty good agreement on what the goals of the league are. Are is it to just decide who wins the thousand bucks at the end of the year? If so, then we have to really be cognizant of the potential for an also ran to really upset the balance and unfairly give a team uh, an an edge because nobody else will deal and he's the only guy who has the the stud who's going to push that guy over the top. On the other hand, in an experts league, uh, sometimes where there's no money involved, sometimes the the goal should be to be trying to your hardest all the time to gain points because the theory is that that readers and listeners are watching what we do in these experts leagues and trying to get ideas from them and if 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 that's the case then we really need to be trying to encourage everybody to figure out how to move up even if it's from 10th to 9th or 9th to 8th and sometimes that forces you to deal with the guys in 3rd and 2nd because if you're in 8th and I'm in 7th I can't trade with you because I'm going to help you, and you're the guy I'm trying to pass. Yeah, um, you know, the, you know, the next extension are ways to are ways to keep people playing, and in an expert leagues, is it necessary? We're all professionals. Well, Tout Wars penalizes Fab for the following year. Uh, home leagues may uh, you get your draft. I think labor actually your reserve pick depends upon your finish. The better. The, the better the finish, the the better your reserve pick. Although reserve snakes, so who's to say that one spot's actually better? Um, some uh, XFL are supplemental draft picks. The second place team gets the first supplemental pick. So there's a reward in, in all the way up the line. The there's a reward for finishing higher. My favorite one, and I know we talked about this at a first pitch a few years ago, and I've never I've never implemented it, and I don't know if anybody has. But what about a league with a with a with a running champ a running well, a running champion is in, in in that I don't mean like running but the you use a like a three year or two year whatever it might three year total uh, points to, to, so the champion each year is the the team with the most cumulative roto points whatever it might be over the past three seasons which sort of forces teams to squeeze out as many points as they can because they're not hurting themselves for this year. They're hurting themselves for the future, for, for winning the, the championship in future years. I, mean, the, 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 I think the problem, and that's not the problem, but the, uh, the, the challenge is you, you need to find a, a stable league where everybody's going to stick around right. because you, you, know, you want to keep the same teams active for all three years and then it's a running, you know, all, all forever, really. So it's a, in a league like that. If you don't win, you you drop out, and you're it, it messes up. So I think logistically, it's an it's an issue. But I wonder how that might change how people play. Is if it's a, like a three year running total of points determining the champion? It would be interesting, and I hope you to find out a way to to implement a league like that because I think it would be great fun to watch as well. Uh, Todd, thanks yeah. a million for talking with us again this week. We'll catch up with you again in seven days. All right, man. Have a good week.
Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, we have the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Upton going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Cologne carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. He just got to Tim Tuffle, the third base coach. He is approaching home plate. He touches home plate with his first major league home run. And they are going to give him a silent treatment in the dugout. They have vacated. The Mets have left the building. Bartolo Colon is the loneliest man in San Diego as he reaches the Mets dugout after hitting a home run and there's nobody there to greet him. And now here they come up the dugout steps. Wow. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Texas starting pitcher Brock Burke. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Back in March, March 23rd, 2019 to be exact, our own Stephen Nickrad made the following prediction. Brock Burke is a emerging lefty who could crack the Texas rotation after some more seasoning in the high minors. Like many of Stephen Nickrad's predictions, this one is also likely to come true, perhaps even in August according to some rumors. Of course, we're not necessarily predicting that Brock Burke will debut in August. He's only logged 54 innings pitched in 2019 due mainly to blisters and shoulder fatigue. However, those 54 innings pitched have looked pretty good. Highlighted by a 318 ERA through nine starts with the AA Frisco Rough Riders, earning him a promotion to the AAA Nashville Sounds on August 6th. Standing six foot four, this 23-year-old left-hander who came to Texas from Tampa Bay in the three-way deal that sent Jerks and Profar to Oakland last December has plus velocity on his four-seam fastball, according to a 2019 minor league baseball analyst, which also noted that Brock Burke's slider plays up due to a late sweepy movement. Will that be enough to secure a spot in the Rangers' rotation? Probably not this season. In fact, at BaseballHQ.com, we're only projecting him to pitch in one game for the rest of 2019. That's why Brock Burke, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Wait a second, only one game? Brock Burke's Major League debut? Perhaps his only chance to pitch at the stadium, formerly known as the ballpark in Arlington? All Prince references aside, it's quite possible that Texas will consider giving Brock Burke a longer look in September. Here's why. Brock Burke is already on the 40-man roster, and barring injury or some other unforeseen circumstance, only Mike Miner and Lance Lynn appear to be locks in the rotation at this point, and that spells opportunity for a starter to emerge, and according to Stephen Nickrad, Brock Burke is an emerging lefty. Hmm, let's think about this for a second. 
So Texas is looking for a starter to emerge, and Brock Burke is an emerging left-handed starter. Ah, the plot thickens. A closer look shows that Brock Burke has commanded his pitch as well in 2019 to the tune of a 441 strikeouts-to-walks ratio. Because there is no more fundamental pitching skill than getting the ball over the plate, we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting pitchers with command ratios, or strikeouts-to-walks ratios, of three or higher. And Brock Burke's 441 strikeouts-to-walks ratio certainly qualifies him to be our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, starting with our marquee matchup, Washington Nationals left-hander Patrick Corbin in New York to square off against the Mets right-hander Noah Syndergaard. And here with the lowdowns on the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. 14 starting pitchers have matchup ratings above one this weekend. Just three of them have matchup ratings above two, and only one has a matchup rating above three. For the second weekend in a row, the top gun is Justin Verlander, this time with a matchup rating of 333. He has one of our three marquee mismatchups with matchup rating differentials greater than three. Verlander is in Baltimore where he has a matchup rating differential advantage of 565 against unknown Tom Eshelman who has a matchup rating of minus 232. But that 565 matchup rating differential on Sunday is only the second largest Mitch matchup of the weekend. In his second start since returning to Atlanta's rotation, Mike Fultonevich takes a strong start matchup rating recommendation of 132 into Miami. He'll face the man with the worst matchup rating of the weekend at minus 513, blast from the past Hector Noesi. That gives Fulte a matchup rating differential advantage of 645. The Braves, Astros, and Yankees are the three teams whose hitters get the benefit of facing two pitchers with weak start recommendations this weekend, as the risks just keep getting richer. And on Saturday, there's still another matchup rating differential above three at 338 in San Diego, where hometown phenom Chris Paddock pits his matchup rating of 125 against Colorado Rockies right-hander Alex Chichi Gonzalez and his matchup rating of minus 213. Our marquee matchup features the smallest matchup rating differential among matchups in which both pitchers have strong start matchup rating recommendations. The holder of the National League wildcard faces one of the five contenders separated by only a game and a half as two of the hottest teams in Major League Baseball face off on Saturday in the New York Mets pitcher-friendly city field. 26-year-old Mets right-hander Noah Syndergaard puts his matchup rating of 130 up against Washington Nationals 29-year-old left-hander Patrick Corbin, who has a matchup rating of 146. That's a matchup differential of only 0.16 in favor of Corbin as the two National League East rivals face one another head-to-head. The New York Mets have won 9 of their past 10, 15 of their past 20, and 21 of their past 30 games. Those are the best, second best, and third best records in Major League Baseball, respectively. According to BaseballReference.com, the Mets have increased their playoff odds by more than 18% over the past 30 days. But guess what? So have the Washington Nationals. Their odds of making the postseason are now over 65%, while New York's odds are still below 20%. The Nats currently hold the hammer for the National League wildcard by two games over the Brewers and the Phillies. The Mets are tied with the cards a half game back. 
It's important to note that the New Yorkers' sudden surge came against weaker teams, and their next two sets are against Washington and Atlanta. The Mets may be 12 games over 500 at home, but against teams over 500, they're 12 games under 500. The Mets have a run differential of 13, the Nationals have a run differential of 46. The Nats are nine games over 500 versus right-handers and two games over 500 on the road. But versus teams over 500 like the Mets are now, the Nats are seven games under 500. It should be an exciting series between these two teams this weekend. Patrick Corbin has a strong baseball reference war of 3.6, and that makes him the Nationals' third best pitcher. Noah Syndergaard's 2.0 baseball reference war makes him the New Yorker's third best pitcher as well. Syndergaard's expected weighted on base average is 269, which is fifth in the majors. Corbin's expected weighted on base average is 300, which ranks 43rd. Corbin has given back some of the gains he posted in his breakout 2018, going from a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 39% dominant to 0% disaster in 2018 to 39% dominant and 30% disaster this season. And a BPV of 167 to 136. But like many of his 2019 metrics, that BPV is a career second best to his 2018 mark. Corbin is a solid bet to do well on Saturday. Noah Syndergaard has PQS dominant outings in four of his past five starts. Overall, his 2019 PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio is 41% dominant to 18% disaster. His BPV is a career-worst, but it's still 122. Anytime a starter is over 100, he's elite. Syndergaard has already pitched against Washington three times this season, and his BPV against them is 151. That's the exact same BPV Corbin has put up versus the Mets in four starts. Our marquee matchup is about as close as you can get to a coin flip, and there appears to be no reason to doubt the 0.16 matchup rating differential. As you probably guessed, you can expect good results from Syndergaard, too. To recap, get your Braves, Astros, and Yankees hitters active for their double dips against pairs of pitchers with weak start matchup rating recommendations. Take advantage of the marquee mismatchups in favor of Justin Verlander, Mike Fultonevich, and Chris Paddock. And show no fear of using either or both of the marquee matchup men, Patrick Corbin and Noah Syndergaard. Go to the Teams tab at BaseballHQ.com and use our Pitcher Matchups tool to choose your pitchers every day and your hitters every week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Pitcher Matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend Pitcher Matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I want to talk about some Master Notes notes from the Master Notes Notebook. And in an act of mercy that should get me a nomination for the Nobel Prize, this podcast version of Master Notes is shorter than the version you can read for free online at BaseballHQ.com or in the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. The longer version includes a comment on the wins category, which is one of my favorite hobby horses. But let's get started. In a scattered week, let's look at some Master Notes notes from the Master Notes notebook. First... Something that every baseball story seems to get obviously wrong, but nobody has noticed until now. The other day I was listening to a Cleveland game because I have a couple of their hitters and pretty much their entire bullpen except the closer. The announcer was talking about Cleveland's recent hot streak, during which they had climbed from one game under 500, or so he said, on June 2nd, to 21 games over 500 on August the 4th, and he added that they had closed the gap behind division-leading Minnesota from 11.5 games to 3. I thought something didn't add up with all that, so let me explain why. 
On June 2nd, Cleveland's record was 29 wins and 30 losses. Using the common formula, the announcer said Cleveland was one game under 500. But a 500 record through 59 games would have been 29 and a half wins, 29 and a half losses. So by simple arithmetic, Cleveland was half a game under 500. They had 30 losses instead of 29 and a half. They were not a full game under 500. For a further example, let's look at the American League Central standings as of August 4th, after 111 games each for the Minnesota Twins and Cleveland. Minnesota had 69 wins, 42 losses. They were in first place. Cleveland had 66 wins and 45 losses, and they were three games back. Now, by the usual calculation, Minnesota at 69 and 42 would be 27 games over 500, while Cleveland at 66 and 45 was 21 games over 500. Since 27 games over minus 21 games over would equal 6 games, Cleveland must have been 6 games behind Minnesota. But the official Major League Baseball standings said Cleveland was 3 games behind Minnesota, and that's because the games behind calculation correctly adds one half game per win and subtracts one half game per loss. Cleveland has 3 games fewer in the wins column, which amounts to 1.5 games, and 3 more in the loss column, another 1.5 games. 1.5 games times 2 is 3 games total behind the leader. Now, in terms relative to 500, using the same arithmetic, Minnesota is 13.5 games over 500, Cleveland is 10.5 games over 500, and they are thus 3 games apart. I rest my case, and I fully expect the court to side with me, but I do expect jury nullification. Part 2. You thought Jose Ramirez was finished? Well, Jose Ramirez has other ideas. Speaking of Cleveland, it wasn't that long ago that Jose Ramirez owners, including me, were wondering whether to sell low on the season's biggest offensive disappointment and be happy to get 20 cents on the auction dollar. Through the first 53 games of the year, through June 2nd, Ramirez was literally one of the worst players among the 138 hitters with 200-plus plate appearances in that period. He was doing okay in stolen bases, where he's third overall in stolen bases per 650 plate appearances, but otherwise not so good. Home runs per 650, 11. That was 128th out of 138 hitters. RBIs, 45, tied for 133rd. Runs, 53 tied for 135th, and batting average, 206, 136th out of 138 players. Remember, all those counting stats are prorated to 650 plate appearances, so it sounds better than it actually is. Ramirez's skills were actually pretty decent all this time, although his hard hit percentage was down from career norms, and perhaps as a result, he was being clobbered by a 23% hit rate and a 5% homer per fly rate. Since June 3rd, however, Ramirez has been reassuring his owners in a huge way. He's still contributing stolen bases, 11th out of 126 qualifying hitters at 26 stolen bases per 650, but he's really shot up in the other roto categories. Home runs per 650, 35, tied for 37th. RBIs, 124 pace, tied for 7th. Runs, 109, tied for 27th, and batting average, 286, tied for 47th. If we give each of the 126 qualifying hitters in the period rotisserie points in those per 650 PA counting stats as well as batting average, Ramirez is 11th behind Fernando Tatis, Ronald Acuna, Christian Yelich, Freddie Freeman, Javier Baez, Yuli Gurriel, Jeff McNeil, Starling Marte, Mike Trout, and DJ LeMahieu. Jose Ramirez is in pretty good company. And 
There are signs his skills are recovering as well. His hit rate for the period was 27%, still a little below career norm, but definitely trending in the right direction. He's pulling the ball in 53% of his batted balls after June 2nd, up nine points from the earlier period, and he's decreased his infield fly rate by one-third. He's exchanged four points worth of soft contact for four more points of hard contact, and he made more contact, 11% strikeout rate down from the earlier 15%. Of course, it's tempting to build a narrative here to explain this turnaround, and if I were challenged, I might wonder if it had something to do with the whole pregnancy and birth situation. If everything goes perfectly, it can wear on a guy, and any difficulties can be extremely troubling. Even a joyous outcome and a happy, healthy baby means plenty of sleepless nights. I'm just speculating. It remains to be seen whether Ramirez can maintain his momentum or if he will fall into a swoon like he did last season. But if you're a Jose Ramirez owner and you're thinking of selling now, ask for more than 20 cents on the dollar. Way more. Part 3. Fun with PQS. The best and worst scores proving pretty definitively that Steven Strasburg is a better starter than Clayton Richard. I love the pure quality starts logs at BaseballHQ.com. They're part of the Leading Indicators Suite, a fantastic set of tools for subscribers at BaseballHQ.com, and they're great for finding things to make my blood boil when I need something because Twitter is down. The PQS log lists 281 starting pitchers. The pitcher with the most top scores, PQS 5, is Steven Strasburg of Washington. He has eight. Three more pitchers, Trevor Bauer, Jacob deGrom, and Lance Lynn, have seven each. But only four pitchers, Max Scherzer, Charlie Morton, Walker Bueller, and Garrett Cole, have at least five PQS fives and no PQS zeros. And speaking of PQS zeros, Antonio Senzatela of Colorado, who earlier had a win in an eight-run catastrophe, leads Major League Baseball with eight goose eggs on the PQS scores in 18 starts. He also has two PQS fives, so talk about all or mostly nothing. Meanwhile, Trent Thornton and Adrian Sampson have seven PQS zeros apiece and no fives. Having no PQS fives isn't really that odd. 39 pitchers out of the group, 14% of them, have no PQS fives. The PQS average for all starters with 10 or more starts is 2.3. The highest averages are Scherzer at 3.8 and Strasburg and Justin Verlander at 3.5. The lowest PQS average is Clayton Richard at 0.7. Richard has had 10 starts. None of them has scored higher than a PQS 2. He had two of those, plus three ones and five zeros. Only one 10-plus starter has a higher percentage of PQS zeros than Richard's 50%. Glenn Sparkman has seven zeros in 13 starts for a 54% rate. Sparkman, though, has a couple of PQS 5s and a PQS 3, so his overall average of 1.3 is quite a bit higher than Richard's. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Ariel Cohen from Rotograph, CBS, and the Beat the Shift podcast. 
Ariel is an innovative fantasy baseball researcher and analyst, a great guy for a conversation, whether in person or as you heard here on the podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another Friday full edition on the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.